0: welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, or Nootropics Depot guru on Reddit, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil.
1: Hey, everyone, and you can find me on Reddit under Pretty Chill.
0: Today, we are going to be talking about a very fascinating topic, which is NAD+, its biosynthesis pathways, uh, what function it has in our bodies, what it's doing in our cells, and how it's affecting lots of really essential and important bodily functions, especially as we age. We're also going to be talking about what are sirtuins and how they are a part of the NAD Plus process. But before we jump into that fascinating topic, we are going to start with new product releases. These are the new products that we've released since our last podcast episode, and we're going to start with a very popular and exciting new product release that we have out now. It is ectosterone tablets and powder. Emil, tell us a little bit about this new product that we've released and all of the good juicy details that everybody needs to know.
1: Absolutely. beta ecdysterone is a very interesting compound and there's been a lot of misinformation about it back in the day too. So in the past i was a little bit skeptical about it because it was always being seen as this thing that enhances testosterone and androgenic activity and that's why it helps you build muscle i was never able to really find any androgenic mechanisms but still was really interested because clearly it was having a type of anabolic effect and a lot of people were using it getting great results with it. So then we started looking into it a little bit more and found the specific mechanisms. And for beta-ectosterone, it's actually acting through an estrogenic mechanism, which in all of the past podcasts, we've kind of tried to paint estrogen in a positive light. So it's interesting seeing this other positive estrogenic supplement. So the way it works is it binds to the estrogen beta receptor. When it binds to and activates the estrogen beta receptor, it also releases insulin-like growth factor 1, also known as IGF-1. And IGF-1 has a really good anabolic effect. So when you stimulate these estrogen beta receptors with beta-ectosterone, then you get this really nice IGF-1 response, and that has really significant anabolic effects. If you are getting real beta-ectosterone, which if you've been following any of the the back and forth on, on Reddit and YouTube these days, especially on some of the bodybuilding forums, you might have seen that there is some, some controversy happening there. And a lot of beta-ectosterone products are, are quite low dose too. We really tried to go for a proper dose of beta-ectosterone and also trying to make it an affordable extract. So we went for a 50% beta-ectosterone extract from Cyanotis arachnoidea. And this plant is one of the highest plants in ectosteroids and specifically beta ectosterone. So instead of going for like a 98% extract where we would have to have done a lot of purification and this would have driven up the cost a lot too, especially if you want to attain a proper dose of beta ectosterone, Going for a 98% really drives up the cost. So going with this 50% extract where we have a very high concentration of beta-ectosterone, but we don't have to do as much uh, isolation and purification work on the extract side of things. And in addition to that, there are also multiple different ectosterones. So terkestrone, for example, not claiming that there's terkestrone in our beta-ectosterone, by the way, I don't think there's any, but there are some other minor ectosteroids that might have Positive influence on the total effects profile of our beta-ectosterone product. So, proper dose in our case, we're going for 250 milligrams of beta-ectosterone, which is a fairly high dose, and this should have a really um, positive impact on anyone going to the gym looking to increase their strength but also their muscle mass and would be really good for someone on a muscle hypertrophy program. Interestingly, though because of its estrogen beta receptor activity it also has a lot of positive effects for aging women or just women in general because it can replace some of the estrogen by binding directly to the estrogen beta receptor and the estrogen beta receptor is highly expressed throughout the brain so activating this receptor would mimic some of the positive estrogenic effects in the brain which as older women go into menopause they start losing a lot of estrogen so then they have cognitive deficits sometimes uh, issues with blood flow and having some extra estrogen beta receptor stimulation via beta ectosterone should actually have a positive effect on cognitive health in menopause and in addition to this it can have a positive effect for pretty much anyone's cognitive health because estrogen beta receptors are really important for both men and women for cognitive health and blood flow Another interesting thing is actually bone density, bone health, estrogen plays a big role there, estrogen beta receptor again seems to be implicated here, so taking something like beta ectosterone can be a very comprehensive solution for a lot of different goals.
0: Awesome, that's a really comprehensive list of effects, so we're thinking about the benefits of beta ectosterone on bone health and on cognitive function, and for strength building and muscle building as well.
1: And probably libido as well. Uh, Something we talked about in the last episode with horny goatweed, a lot of the libido effects might actually be coming through estrogenic mechanisms, and here we might be hitting on that estrogenic mechanism. I haven't necessarily heard anyone really experiencing libido-promoting effects from beta-ectosterone, but it could be possible given its uh, activity and and its mechanism of action.
0: Absolutely. I personally haven't tried the beta-ectosterone yet, but the more that we talk about it and the more that I learn, the more curious I am. So perhaps I'll add this to my stack at some point in time, but I imagine that for a lot of people, this is going to be a really exciting and important element in uh, just general workout stack. Um, something that you could certainly stack with tonga Ali, with Cistanche, um, with horny goatweed, and just really round out all of those benefits um, that can kind of work within the hormones in your body and help you get stronger and help in a lot of different areas.
1: And Erica actually hits on a good point there because... Uh, Beta ectostern isn't working through androgenic mechanisms, it will go really well with something like Tonga Dali, which is mainly acting through androgenic mechanisms. So you're not just adding two of the same things on top of each other, you're adding two very distinct mechanisms on top of each other, which should be complementary and probably outcompete either one in isolation for hypertrophic effects.
0: Very cool. So, let's move on to the next new product release. It is RALA cyclodextrin tablets. Now, this one is very interesting because uh, RALA cyclodextrin is like the optimized version of an alpha-lipoic acid supplement, but I'm curious, Emil, if you can tell us a little bit more and get into some more detail.
1: Absolutely. So, if you look at alpha-lipoic acid, it can... Exist in a few different forms. So you have R alpha lipoic uh, acid and you have S alpha lipoic acid. So we'll abbreviate those to RALA and SALA. And this refers to the direction in which they spin, chemically speaking. And SALA doesn't absorb really well but has pretty good stability. RALA, on the other hand, absorbs really well and has quite poor stability what we've determined though and collectively what the research world has determined is that we really do want rala we don't want sala and we don't necessarily want a racemic mixture which would have both forms in there so equal mixture of sala and rala also not super interesting so the alpha lipoic acid world has always really looked at our alpha lipoic acid and You have to stabilize it somehow. One of the easiest ways to do it is just to slap uh, some sodium on there. And then you have N-A-R-A-L-A, so sodium-stabilized alpha-lipoic acid. And this is
0: something that we carry as well.
1: Absolutely. This this is a really good way of doing it and it's a little bit cheaper too because it's a little bit simpler and it seems to do a great job of stabilizing alpha-lipoic acid. We took it a step further with the cyclotextrin ALA and based this on some Japanese research looking at how can we promote the stability of our ALA, not only just as a supplement in a, in a bottle, but also in our body, how can we prevent some of the reactions from taking place once it hits stomach acid, so they again determined that NARA is a pretty good strategy of doing this but an even better one is to take a specialized starch a cyclic starch and we call this cyclodextrin and to take the alpha lipoic acid molecule and load it inside of this circular starch by doing this the starch protects the alpha lipoic acid from stomach acid and really improves stability and bioavailability as well and interestingly enough if anyone has ever tasted NARALA it tastes horrible and one thing that cyclodextrin does it prevents some of this taste because it's not directly hitting your tongue it's it's coated in the cyclodextrin now so you still get a little bit of taste but if you'd like taking powder versions of NARALA and you don't want to take a capsule or something like that and the taste is off putting to you, then the cyclodextrin ALA is a slightly improved version of this. So that's nice.
0: And just to circle back to this new product, we've released the tablet version of this. So if you don't like taking powders, uh, oh, yeah. but you're still interested in taking this product, um, we now have it available in tablet form. Now, I had a question for you, Emil, because you mentioned that the cyclodextrin prevents um, this. RALA from being broken down in the stomach, where is the ideal place that RALA would be absorbed in the body?
1: Yeah, so it's not that the ALA is completely getting broken down. It's getting polymerized in the stomach, and this makes it harder to absorb and also degrades the the ALA a bit. So it can absorb in the stomach. it, It will likely absorb in the intestines, too, really well. So, you could also potentially put it in like an enteric coated tablet and then have it pass all the way through your stomach acid and get deposited in your intestines. That's actually an interesting thing to think about because that might be a really good strategy. But, in terms of what the cyclodextrin is doing within the stomach acid scenario, and it's probably absorbing quite well in the stomach as well but in the stomach it's protecting the ALA from polymerizing and interacting with the stomach acid so it's kind of just a barrier between alpha lipoic or our alpha lipoic acid and stomach acid but it can still absorb there.
0: Okay very cool so now we're going to move on to our last new product release from this past month and that is Horny Goatweed 50% Icarin Powder. This is for all of you who were asking for the 50% icarin powder. It is now available for you.
1: Yeah, and I would say go watch the the previous episode of our podcast if you want to know what horny goat weep does. But as kind of a quick aside, the 50% one is really high in compound called icarin. That's what the standardization is for. And this compound is a PDE5 inhibitor, so it enhances blood flow. So. The quick and dirty on horny goatweed is if you want PDE5-mediated blood flow enhancement, get the horny goatweed 50% Icarin, has really high concentration of Icarin, which helps with that, helps with some more selective effects for blood flow.
0: Absolutely. And when you're purchasing powders, this is a nice flexible way if you like to try out different dosages. Um, You can weigh out a dosage on your scale and see what dose works best for you. Uh, For those of you who don't like powders, we also have this product available in capsule form, so there's multiple options. And Emil brought up a great point, which is that we have an entire podcast episode all about horny goat weed, And if you're listening on YouTube, you can find the link to this podcast in the description. Or if you're listening on any streaming services, go find us on YouTube, Nootropics Depot, and check out our previous podcast episodes because we've got lots of fascinating material, conversations, and product discussions to discover. So now we're going to get into the very interesting and deep topic for this month's podcast episode, which is... NAD+, and specifically, what are sirtuins, and how are they a part of the NAD-plus process that's going on in our bodies, and what can supplementation do for NAD-plus levels as we age? These are huge questions, so we're going to take it step by step, and starting with our main question, what is NAD-plus, and how does it contribute to longevity?
1: Yeah NAD plus is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and it's a fairly large molecule if, if you look at it we can probably flash it up on the screen right now if you're on YouTube. So if we're looking at this compound you have the, basically these two compounds linked together by uh, a bridge and their phosphate groups. and. One of these is actually nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, which we will talk about a little bit later. But let's explore a little bit more what is actually NAD+, plus? So, and what is it used for? And this is a really hard question to answer because NAD+, plus is basically used for everything. If you look at a lot of uh, your old high school biology textbooks or something like that, and you flip to infographic pages, I'm pretty sure you'll probably see NAD plus and NADH on almost every little cycle and, and enzyme interaction. I think it's in the order of about 300 different enzymes that NAD plus interacts with, and it's all throughout the body and it interacts in the citric acid cycle, which is a huge cycle for energy production it uh, has a big role to play in the electron transport chain and in mitochondria and actually generating ATP and it's one of the bigger redox pairs too so NAD plus and NADH a lot of redox reactions are handled by this single compound so it makes sense that One, there's many different routes to get to NAD+. There's not really one synthetic pathway that makes NAD+. So clearly it's important that we have a lot of this compound around. And there's a lot of recycling mechanisms for this compound. So
0: So quickly to interrupt, one thing to mention is that NAD++ is an endogenous compound.
1: Yeah, pretty much everything we will be talking about today, except, of course, once we get into more like plant-based compounds to help inhibit certain enzymes or to enhance uh, NAD plus production in certain ways. Most of the things we'll be talking about, including some of the supplements we'll be recommending, like nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide, they are all endogenous compounds.
0: So that means that these compounds are existing in our bodies already, and when we talk about supplementing them, we are adding to our body's stores of these compounds that should already be in production, but, you know, just giving it a little bit of an extra
1: boost. And they should, under most normal circumstances, be in production, but there's a lot of factors that can decrease NAD plus production, which we'll be talking about too. And and one of those is actually aging. So as we age, our NAD plus stores go down. So this is where NAD plus features a, a big role in the whole longevity scene. And and we'll definitely talk about that in a lot of detail in a second. Let's look at some of the pathways by which we can make NAD+. though. I think that will really help us understand a lot of the the future conversations we'll we'll be having in a minute here, being able to frame where is some of this stuff coming from, because as Erica mentioned, this is going to be a bit of a complex uh, podcast because it is such a highly expressed system throughout all of our bodies. And and similar to glutathione, pretty much every cell in your body needs NAD+. And if you've ever watched David Sinclair, so we'll be talking about David Sinclair a bit too, he discovered a lot of what we'll be talking about, sirtuin activity, supplementing things like NMN. And if you see any of his podcasts, he'll famously say if you take away all of your NAD+, you'll be dead in 30 seconds. So very important. Let's pull up this. If you're watching on YouTube right now on the screen, we'll flash a, a very complex-looking graphic that we will go through, starting at the de novo or the kynurenine synthesis pathway for NAD+. So now, if we're looking kind of at the top li- left-hand corner of this image, we'll see the kynurenine pathway. And the input here is tryptophan, and we get tryptophan from our diet. Um, L-tryptophan is a part of proteins, so proteins are chains of peptides, basically. Peptides are chains of amino acids, so when we eat proteins during metabolism, a lot of these amino acids get freed up, and one of them is tryptophan. Tryptophan can also be used for serotonin synthesis, but in this case we are looking at tryptophan being one of the starting materials for NAD synthesis and this is a pretty roundabout pathway that's wrought with drawbacks so if we're looking at some of the compounds that get formed like kyanurine and some of these I think um, quinolinic acid is maybe also slightly neurotoxic I'm not sure but a lot of these intermediates are a little bit neurotoxic So we don't want to rely probably all too heavily on this kyanurine or de novo pathway as as it's a little bit tricky getting everything right. And I think as we age, this is maybe also where things start going wrong, where less NAD plus is being synthesized through this pathway and more of these uh, unwanted metabolites are showing up and sticking around a little bit longer. So that might be something... We need to dive into a little bit more when it comes to aging and NAD+, and and all of these mechanisms. But that's something interesting to think about. So we can get NAD+, from tryptophan, an amino acid, in our diet. Now, moving on to the other more direct pathway, and also a pathway where we'll be getting an input from our diet. So this is the price handler pathway. And the input here is listed as Na, which is nicotinic acid, which is niacin, which is vitamin B3. So, vitamin B3 is in our diet, so this is one of the other dietary sources of NAD+. And this is a pretty quick pathway, and I think this is one of the bigger pathways by which we normally obtain NMN and some of these other intermediates and then NAD+. Now we have one other pathway, the salvage pathway, and this pathway, it, it's almost like a recycling pathway for NAD+, so NAD+, can get broken down into NMN, and NAM, and even nicotinamide riboside, and then these can come together and form NAD+, again, and this seems to be a really big, very important pathway, and this is the pathway we are manipulating with supplements mostly. So. If you look at the inputs for this pathway, you see NR, which stands for nicotinamide riboside, and you have NMN, which stands for nicotinamide mononucleotide. And if you see when they're coming in, nicotinamide riboside first has to convert to nicotinamide mononucleotide, and then from nicotinamide mononucleotide, it's a one-step pathway to NAD+. And that means if you are supplementing NMN, as you can see more on the right of this image, NMN is going in and straight into the cycle and straight to NAD+. So this is one of the reasons why NMN is one of the best precursors for NAD plus synthesis because it's just one step away. And one of the reasons why it is just one step away is because NMN already has a phosphate group. And if you look at NAD plus, it has these two phosphate groups that are also linking these two um, NMN-like compounds together. Nicotinamide riboside does not have this phosphate group, so that means that in order to get to NAD+, you first need to attach a phosphate group to nicotinamide riboside, which then turns it into nicotinamide mononucleotide. But when you're taking nicotinamide mononucleotide, the phosphate group is already there, and your body doesn't have to, through a biosynthetic pathway, attach a phosphate group to nicotinamide riboside, say in the case that you are taking nicotinamide riboside so this is where there's always been this argument which is better purely for nad plus synthesis and the plain answer is just nmn over and over and over again there's a lot of controversy about this there's basically i think one big company that has nicotinamide riboside that has always claimed nicotinamide riboside is the best one maybe it is to a certain degree because it, it does have some other effects but Purely for NAD synthesis, NMN is the clear winner. And if we look at it from a chemical, just very logical, cold scientific standpoint, NMN has that phosphate group. Nictinamide riboside does not have that phosphate group because there is a phosphate group in NAD. You need to get that phosphate group from somewhere. And phosphate chemistry in biosynthetic pathways is kind of tricky. So it takes some more energy, it takes some more effort. So it is a lot more logical to just start with a compound that has the phosphate group on there already. Also one of the reasons why NMN is a little bit more expensive, because phosphate chemistry in the real world done by humans is also difficult. So it's all about that phosphate group, it seems like. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why NMN works better than any other NAD plus precursor. Also, of course, because the whole cycle is built around NMN.
0: So what is the reason for nicotinamide riboside supplementation? And if it's not as direct as NMN, then what are its benefits? And you mentioned that there are some other benefits uh, beyond NAD+.
1: Well, one of them is if we just take NMN orally, then NMN can already break down into some of these other compounds like NAM and then we lose some NMN, and then we're not absorbing as much. So, theoretically, if we take nicotinamide riboside, then that wouldn't necessarily happen to nicotinamide riboside. Then the bottleneck is more the phosphate chemistry. So, it can get to where it needs to go. It can get into the salvage pathway, and once it's there, it can still be converted to NAD+. And this might be one of the benefits for nicotinamide riboside, and you see this with some other things. So, for example... If you look at L-Arginine, L-Arginine is good for enhancing blood flow by being a nitric oxide uh, precursor and you would think that taking L-Arginine is a really good way to increase nitric oxide levels and increase blood flow. But it turns out that L-citrulline, which is a precursor to L-Arginine, is actually a better way to elevate nitric oxide levels via L-Arginine, so this seems kind of strange, but oftentimes you will see that the precursor compound can get the molecule that you want to the place where you want it more efficiently than the molecule itself. This doesn't actually seem to be the case for NMN totally, because NMN also has its own transporter, the SLC... I forget the numbering now unfortunately I think it's 12A8 or something like that let me look that up one second actually if I if I'm looking back at that image we were just looking at it should be listed on there and yep it's the SLC 12A8 transporter so this and you can see it on the the image as well we'll flash it up on the screen again but you can see that it's the specific transporter for NMN and if you look a little bit to the left for the NR, it has a question mark next to it, which means that they probably don't really know what transporter it's going through. Maybe it doesn't really have its own transporter, so this is one benefit for NMN. We are aware that there is some back and forth, again, between the people who really like nicotinamide riboside and between the researchers that really like nicotinam- nicotinamide mononucleotide. They've been clashing a little bit recently, and the SLC 12A8 transporter claims have been a little bit refuted by this other research group so now I think it really boils down to which research do we trust more and for me I trust the NMN research a little bit more so I'm going with the the idea still that the SLC 12A8 transporter is there and this again gives another edge to NMN personally I actually take both NMN and NR so I'm not necessarily favoring one over the other because another thing with nicotinamide riboside is it can accumulate a little bit more in the axons of neurons so within the axons nicotinamide riboside by itself not because it's turning into anything else but just nicotinamide riboside itself has a protective effect in these axons and this can help protect from uh, you know if your head's getting knocked around a little bit in certain sports this can help and so this is a important thing for me because I, I bike around a lot and I've hit my head multiple times in the past. So having some extra nicotinamide riboside in my axon seems like a good idea, but this is one of the reasons why nicotinamide riboside might be more interesting than NMN to some people or if you have the budget for it, it makes it interesting to add nicotinamide riboside on top of NMN. And also now you are getting this precursor into the salvage pathway through two different transporters potentially and two different pathways and in my opinion hitting on some different pathways is probably a more sustainable comprehensive way of elevating nad plus levels
0: all right so now that we understand how nmn and nr both contribute to the production of nad plus let's move down on this image and discuss these other pathways and synthesis processes it's going to get even more complex from here.
1: Yeah so this is when we get into the effects the functions of NAD plus where is it actually helping what is it doing why do people talk about NMN giving them more energy making them feel more youthful making them able to perform better physically. One of the reasons if we look on the left side, the kind of orange uh, image, the mitochondrion, if you look to the right of that, then you also see the glycolysis pathway. So in glycolysis, we're, we're taking glucose, we're breaking the glucose down into pyruvate. While we're doing that, we're also generating ATP. So it's one of the ways in which we derive energy from food and keep ourselves running and keep ourselves functioning the highest degree possible. So NAD plus plays a really important role here, because without NAD plus, the glycolysis cycle doesn't really happen. And during glycolysis, NAD plus gets used up and then NADH gets formed. And NADH can then be transported into the mitochondrion by the malate aspartate shuttle, as you can see very nicely illustrated there. And then the NADH gets entered into the citric acid cycle, which is notated as the TCA cycle there. And in the TCA cycle, more energy gets produced too. Then it can also get entered into the ETC, which stands for the electron transport chain. And this is where the bulk of ATP gets made. And NADH is necessary here for this ATP production. So by Having this redox reaction taking place where NAD plus is getting reduced, and then we're getting NADH, and then this NADH is being entered into the citric acid cycle and into the electron transport chain, and then this is creating energy in the form of ATP. So, when we think about this, every process in our body requires NAD plus at some step because NAD plus is necessary for ATP production, and without ATP, nothing happens and I think that's one of the reasons David Sinclair famously says without NAD plus in your system you'll be dead in 30 seconds because if you're not making ATP you can't contract your muscles and your heart's a muscle so if your heart's not contracting yeah that's not good so NAD plus very important for pretty much everything then if we look on the right side this is in the nucleus of cells and, and here you also have a important function for NAD+ plus and and a nice NAD+, NAD plus, NADH cycle happening there too and then if you look at both of those you'll also see especially in so in the mitochondria you see sirtuin 3 sirtuin 4 and sirtuin 5 and these sirtuins they use NAD+ plus as a substrate so without NAD+, they don't work. And sirtuins are really important for multiple different functions. One of them is deacetylating proteins, which has many impacts on metabolic health and cardiovascular function. And it's really important to be able to properly deacetylate proteins. And sirtuins are important for this. But without NAD+, the sirtuins don't work. So you basically have to refuel the sirtuins with NAD+ another reason why we need NAD plus levels to be high. If you look though in the mitochondria you specifically see these CERT 3 cert 4 and SIRT5 and these are the they exist in other parts of the body but they are more of the specific mitochondria twins. and sirtuin 3 which we'll be talking about a lot in a second helps remodel mitochondria. It helps mitochondria get rid of dead non-functioning mitochondria which We call that mitophagy, but it also helps with mitochondrial biogenesis. So by activating SIRT3, we actually can generate more mitochondria.
0: That seems like a really effective way to increase energy levels,
1: don't you think? Absolutely, and this is why NAD Plus is really important, because you need this energy production thing going on and you need the NAD plus to drive the CERT 3 activity to generate more mitochondria, but then when you have more mitochondria you need more NAD plus so it's basically a never-ending demand for NAD plus, which is why everyone is losing their minds over NAD plus recently, because it's a clearly a very difficult system to understand but it also underlies the foundation of everything that's happening in our body so it makes sense that and we often talk about within supplements getting your foundation right first you know sleep diet etc cetera, etc cetera, but probably also making sure your NAD plus levels are up to snuff because without NAD plus a lot of functions in your body just don't work.
0: Now that we know that CERT 3 is responsible for mitochondrial production I want to know What are sirtuins actually?
1: They are a family of signaling proteins, and I believe, are there six or seven? I think there are seven.
0: I saw SIRT7 on that diagram, so I'm going to say there's seven.
1: Yeah, so SIRT1 through seven. And yeah, sirtuins, and they're these signaling proteins, and they are also metabolic regulators, so they respond to food input or lack of food. And this is something that we... I think is one of the most interesting things about NAD+. It also underlies a lot of the benefits of fasting and calorie restriction, and this is a really popular topic these days too. Part of what happens when you fast, it it's stressful for your body. Your body goes, oh no, I don't have food, I better start conserving some energy or producing more energy. Uh, I might want to ramp up my antioxidant defenses. I have to protect myself as to what's to come. And oftentimes in, in our worlds now, nothing ends up coming. And in fact, most people never get to this state of stress because we've become so conditioned to eat whenever we're hungry that in the Western world, a lot of us are not very often experiencing the feeling of hunger which also means that our cells and all sorts of bodily processes are happening very relaxed. And this will accelerate aging a bit because as these stress-responsive factors start to relax, they also go away and then you have less protein deacetylation, you have less good glucose disposition and things like that. And your NAD plus levels go down, sirtuin activity goes down. So this probably underlies a lot of the Issues we see these days with people overeating, people gaining too much weight, and then you see actually in people that are overweight that NAD plus levels and sirtuin levels are lower. So they are a class, to answer your question simply, they are a class of signaling proteins that react to metabolic inputs, food inputs, basically.
0: Thank you for clarifying that. But I think it's important to continue on this thread that we've started um, in discussing the benefits of fasting and what fasting is is actually doing to our cells because we're we're in this cellular landscape where we're looking at these compounds, uh, NAD+, NR, NMN, and sirtuins. So I want to know what does fasting do to my cells and why is this beneficial for NAD plus levels?
1: so when you fast your glucose level goes down and when your glucose level goes down it can trigger the feeling of hunger low blood sugar triggering hunger feelings and then we top that blood sugar up and then we don't have that hunger feeling anymore but while it's producing this hunger feeling some other underlying stuff is going on too we get for example ampk activation we get sirtuin activation and we get increased synthesis of nad plus one of the reasons for this is because our body recognizes that maybe we are facing a challenge and we need to properly defend ourselves against this and this is why we get these compounds and david sinclair also has a nice thing in one of his podcasts that i was recently saying that he would rather eat fruits and vegetables that look a little bit banged up in the grocery store. So, basically, fruits and veg that have gone through some stress. And he says this is maybe one of the reasons why he likes organic food. These foods need defense mechanisms against the world. And some of these defense mechanisms are actually compounds that, in humans, also increase certain activity. So, for example, resveratrol, which is one thing that David Sinclair is very big on, Understandably, and we'll talk a little bit later why maybe that's a little bit short-sighted to a certain degree because there's a lot of things that activate certain Twins, resveratrol being a good one. But
0: I like this idea of uh, of stress having benefits for us because I think perhaps when it comes to supplementation, thinking about supplementation, um, my mind goes to benefits like calming and mood boosting and you know, relaxing and, and de-stressing, like the concept that stress is bad and I want to get rid of as much stress as possible in order to be healthier and live happier. But it doesn't necessarily uh, translate into understanding how our cells work and how these mechanisms work. And to use just a personal anecdote, I'm a bit of a green thumb. Well, I, I don't grow a lot of my own plants from Um, you know, from the seed, perhaps. But I like to grow plants uh, in my spare time. And one thing I've noticed is that by restricting water from my plants and letting them dry out and stressing them out a little bit and letting some of the leaves go brown, they get stronger over time. And they're easier to prune. And they actually grow faster once I do water them. So this concept of stress and then relief or, or tension and release, if you will, is something that I'm familiar with in the natural world, but wasn't as familiar with when it comes to my own cellular activity. Yeah,
1: and honestly you are not that different from a plant in that sense. You you need some of that stress too. And, and when we talk about stress, we're not necessarily talking about psychological stress. Yes, that's like, a
0: very important distinction to make.
1: If, if I put you in a room with restraints on and I'm playing really loud music and showing you horrible images on a TV, I'll be very like, upset. And your NAD plus levels probably aren't necessarily going up from that. So we're not necessarily talking about this horrible psychological stress or just chronic low levels of psychological stress like at your job. That's not good stress. What we're talking about more like with the plants is in the natural world. Maybe let's rephrase it like this. If we think of the most stress-free life, we are just sitting at home 24 hours a day on the couch eating potato chips and watching TV maybe. We have everything we need. We're in a climate controlled environment. We never have to worry about protecting ourselves from the sun or from wind or from environmental noises or animals or anything like that. We are very safe inside.
0: We have access to food and water. We
1: have constant access to food and water. So we never have to experience this this sensation of hunger. And this is something David Sinclair was saying. Maybe there are people these days that have never actually experienced hunger ever. Because, and I see this especially in America too everywhere you go you get a little snack you get you know you have your you leave the door with a cliff bar and then maybe you have a drink here and a little snack here and then a meal and then maybe three meals in a day so there's this culture and not just in america actually it's kind of everywhere in, in a lot of western cultures and when i lived in malaysia too, people are eating all day long it's part of the culture but it also stems from this idea of we have enough food where we don't have to worry about it as much. If I think of my grandparents who survived World War II in the Netherlands, they had very insecure access to food. So they were experiencing likely high NAD plus levels often, but at the expense of a lot of psychological stress from the war and then it got really bad and they couldn't eat for an entire winter and you have this famous hunger winter and, and that actually caused some genetic malformations in, in their offspring but more so talking about previous generations didn't have consistent access to food my grandparents didn't have consistent access to food because of wars people before that didn't have consistent access to food because we didn't have refrigerators, we didn't have greenhouse technology and things like that, so we were more dependent on seasonal variations and foods within seasons and preserved foods, and even going further and further back when we were hunter-gatherers, we probably had periods of major food insecurity, and if you look at animals too, they don't just have a cache of food that they can always go to, they have to go out and hunt for this food. They have to be physically active and hunt for this food and they might get killed in the process of hunting this food and, and there's some of that stress and we're, we're losing that a little bit when we can just order our groceries online now and someone comes and brings it to our door and maybe we don't even have to cook it, we can just eat processed food all the time whenever we're hungry. We never have to go, oh, I'm hungry but now I have to go cook food for two or three hours. Now it's, I'm hungry, let me eat a bar while I now cook my dinner and then have dinner. And then because of this, NAD plus levels and certain activity can be pretty low.
0: I see. So with all of that in mind, keeping in mind uh, modern technology and conveniences of, of having food accessible and being able to eat food often, how how can we... Basically, compare access to food and the benefits of of a nutritional, a tr- a nutritionally healthy lifestyle, to a lifestyle where we are intentionally causing stress to ourselves by fasting and using fasting and using hunger as a tool for optimizing our own health.
1: Yeah. So that's that's the complete you. Ut- utopic you know you can just lounge all day eat however much you want do whatever you want you don't have to engage in physical activity and a lot of us are doing that unfortunately myself included during covid a lot of the time when we're in those states i think that's a lot of common health issues that we see now might be stemming from this now if we go the opposite direction and we just want to introduce some stress back in there. One easy thing is just skip a meal, skip breakfast, skip lunch, maybe skip dinner. And now we have two things happening. Well, we have caloric restriction happening and we have fasting happening. That's not a really long fast. You can actually go up in in time. so. 24 hours, you get some some more AMPK activation, you get more sirtuin activity, you get higher NAD plus levels, you can even fast up to 72 hours. I haven't tried this yet, I'm, I'm curious to try it sometime soon. Apparently once you hit the 72 hour mark, NAD plus levels and sirtuin activity is so high that you also start getting fairly high amounts of autophagy kind of clearing old dead cells that we need to get rid of. So, But this is one of those ways, and then of course also when we fast and when we expose ourselves to this fasting stress, because it is a stressor, then uh, we get, we don't have to process as much glucose either, so then insulin sensitivity goes up. And that insulin sensitivity is also very important for overall health. So you have these different factors all working together that when you introduce this stress into your life, then you can have positive results. But now coming back to what David Sinclair was saying about stressed out plants, there are compounds in plants that are responding to other environmental stresses that might be able to mimic that kind of stress in humans. So if we look at sirtuins being activated by the stress of calorie restriction or fasting, then if resveratrol is activating these sirtuins in the same way, it is mimicking the stress. And what he's saying is that the plants that produce resveratrol actually produce a little bit more resveratrol if they experience a little bit of stress during their growth. And and you see this similarly with lion's mane. If you stress it out a little bit, it produces more herisonones and irinocene. So we see this happening a lot. Plants that experience stress to a certain degree produce more of certain compounds which can then have better effects in humans and if we then look at this certain activity we can mimic the stress without actually having the stress and then if we look at NMN precursor or NAD plus precursors like NMN or nicotinamide riboside by taking these we can mimic what happens during these stressor periods where we're not eating as much, or we're just flat out fasting, we can mimic some of that by enhancing NAD plus levels with nicotinamide mononucleotide and nicotinamide riboside, and then we can enhance their activity by increasing sirtuin activity, or even AMPK activity. And there are ways where we can use plant compounds like berberine or hesperidin to increase AMPK activity, or um, Honokiol or curcumin, even DHA to enhance certain activity. So we have some inputs that we can take and mimic some of this. But this is a little bit wasteful, actually, because if you think about it, you get these things for free already when you just don't eat or you calorie restrict or you exercise. So during exercise, NAD plus synthesis also goes up and certain activity goes up. So the best way to utilize some of these things is to take these compounds that mimic stress and actually experience the stress for yourself. So take NMN, take nicotinamide riboside and then pair it with calorie restriction or fasting and then it will work better. And I was curious if it would work better and we are currently developing a bit of a cool NAD stack and during beta testing i've been trying it out in the morning fasted after not eating the night before or a little bit later in the afternoon when i haven't eaten during the the morning so having this brief period of fasting and then taking it and then seeing if it has more of a perceptible feeling and i do what have you
0: noticed so far
1: so far i have noticed higher energy levels than I would get from taking NMN with food or at a different point in the day and an interesting thing to note here too is that NAD plus levels occurred according to a circadian cycle so that means that when it's day or night that's your circadian cycle then a 24-hour cycle so NAD plus is expressed higher in the morning according to the circadian rhythm. So one thing I was doing, I was skipping my dinner. So I was fairly fasted first thing in the morning and then taking this new NAD plus enhancing stack on an empty stomach. And then this produced a very strong cellular energy type effect. It's a little bit hard to to say exactly what it was. The best way I can describe it is my body felt like it was so charged up that it, it could almost vibrate a little bit. So That
0: sounds like a really good feeling and kind of experience to have in the morning when you're like getting ready to go work out or doing a really challenging task.
1: Yeah, and this is something David Sinclair has hit on in his podcast too. He actually likes taking it when he travels to offset jet lags a little bit. So he's a little bit unsure currently if it totally works, but because NAD plus levels are higher normally in the morning if we then go and travel and we shift our circadian rhythm in our brains but not necessarily in our organs right away, and that takes a little bit longer, our brain follows pretty quick but our organs will take a lot longer to adapt to this circadian shift which then also means that if you are used to having this high elevation of NAD plus happen in the morning, if it's no longer happening in the morning then if NAD plus has an effect on circadian rhythm entrainment then this could throw things off and it does seem like NAD plus has a very important function with the clock genes that control our circadian rhythm so not only is NAD plus expressed according to a circadian rhythm it also influences our circadian rhythm So so there's
0: no escaping
1: there's no escaping but the interesting thing is if you are Having experiencing a healthy circadian rhythm, you're going to bed right around the same time and waking up right around the same time most of the time, then this will mean that your circadian rhythm is perfectly adapted to boosting these NAD plus levels right in the morning, which would make sense because you need some extra energy right in the morning. And when I take NMN on an empty stomach right in the morning, it does have a stimulating effect, something I haven't necessarily noticed as much when taking it later in the day, but it definitely is energizing when I take it in the morning fast. So two things are happening then. Because I'm, I've am i been fasting, I, I've just eaten lunch, I skipped my dinner, I slept, now it's the morning, so I'm fasted for probably 20 hours or so, well, maybe not that much, 16 or 18 but I'm at a decent fasting level, so likely NAD plus activity is a little bit higher, certain when activity is a little bit higher already, and then I'm adding on top of that the morning it should be higher already, due to fasting it's higher, and I'm adding a a very relatively high dose of NMN and nicotinamide riboside and some other factors to help NAD plus synthesis along so i think that's that's a really good way of doing it maybe if you are into fasting and you happen to skip your dinner taking it first thing in the morning and then fasting a little bit longer is good and this is where it got really interesting for me i'm not that good at fasting i get hungry and when i get hungry it really impedes my ability to do research and to think and to link concepts together i really need to be eating something for that to happen maybe the glucose to suppress some of the higher cortisol levels or something like that when I'm really focused and and in the zone I need to eat normally. When I tried the the new NAD plus stack that we're working on on an empty stomach after fasting already, it made it really easy to keep fasting, which was really surprising to me. So I took this at 7 in the morning and then the first time I ate was at 3 p.m. So at that point I had gone about 24 hours with fasting and I wasn't experiencing any hunger. right at 3 p.m. I was pretty hungry but leading up to that I wasn't very hungry which is a unique experience for me because I normally would have been really hungry. And this made me think too. If one of the responses to fasting and to calorie restriction is elevated NAD plus levels. And it's commonly known that the first week or two when you fast, you really experience a high degree of hunger, but after a while this hunger goes away. Now, I've always wondered does it actually go away, or do we just psychologically adapt to it and we go, Well, this isn't great, but I know it has some benefits, so I can I can kind of drop my guard and not think that if I don't eat enough, I'm going to die and kind of overwrite that that stress response, maybe a little bit. So you get used to it on a psychological level. But I do, when I talk to people that have really adapted to fasting, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily a part of it. They just genuinely do not get hungry. That signal is just not there anymore. And it's something I experienced when taking this very strong NAD plus enhancing stack on an empty stomach. So my idea, and I couldn't actually find a whole lot of research on this, so this is just purely a shot in the dark, but what if our NAD plus levels continuously go up the longer we fast and the more consistently we do it, and it's actually the NAD plus that inhibits hunger? Because if NAD plus levels are increasing when we are hungry, maybe it also has an effect on hunger, because at a certain point, maybe... We are in a, a caloric deficit, and it's having some beneficial cellular effects. Maybe at that point, it's just more beneficial to shut off that hunger response and keep riding on that excess production now of sirtuins and NAD plus. Maybe that then overrides the need for calories, or maybe we're switching more to ketones or something like that. But it seems likely that NAD plus has an effect on appetite. And it seems to work in calorie restriction and fasting and has a really important role there. So it seems to make sense that maybe it controls appetite, but we'll explore this more in in the coming months.
0: So I have a question for you because I really struggle with fasting. I find that if I don't eat breakfast or if I don't eat before maybe noon during the day, I am very distracted. Um, I maybe feel a little bit... Uh, hyperactive, and I have a tendency to be more uh, emotionally volatile than when I'm eating. So, if I'm a person who's a little bit uh, apprehensive about the idea of fasting, but I still want some of these NAD plus benefits, are there any options for me? Do I have to just push through it and give it a try and and just see for myself? Like, what what does what does a person who isn't able to fast what can they do to increase NAD plus levels and, and through supplementation or through different kinds of lifestyle changes?
1: So one thing to think about, I noticed you mentioned you have issues fasting when you skip breakfast. Do you have similar issues when you skip lunch or dinner?
0: I would say probably not lunch. I think lunch is the easiest meal for me to skip.
1: So that's really interesting, because if we look at other circadian rhythms, a lot of things are under circadian control or follow a diurnal rhythm. Cortisol is another one that is expressed according to circadian rhythm, and cortisol levels are the highest in the morning. And carbohydrates actually can blunt cortisol response.
0: I know that for sure. Pasta, bread, potato chips, happy.
1: Yeah, so it would make <laughs> to put it very, very simply. If you are used to eating a carbohydrate-heavy meal in the morning, then you are probably also used to now your cortisol levels being a little bit blunted in the mornings. So, skipping this, then yeah, you may be a little bit more irritable, harder to focus, and and I experience the same thing. So I think getting this cortisol response under control with carbohydrates that's a good way of doing it but then when you start fasting then it becomes a problem so maybe there's a way that we can first control cortisol levels a little bit more taking something like shodan ashwagandha or maybe starting the day off with that wake up immediately take shodan ashwagandha that should help drop cortisol levels and then that might make it easier to fast in the morning or we just keep it simple we still eat our breakfast, we still eat our lunch, and we skip our dinner. Or we still eat our breakfast, we skip our lunch, and we eat, eat a slightly later dinner. So there are different ways of doing it. But if fasting doesn't work at all, calorie restriction works well too. Just not as well as straight up fasting, but let's say you are in a little bit of a caloric surplus which let's be honest probably a lot of us are in a little bit of a caloric surplus if I'm looking down at my belly right now I definitely am in a bit of a caloric surplus and I need to either eat a little bit less or exercise more but if we just drop a little bit under that caloric surplus and we restrict our calorie intake we can still eat and we can lose a bit of weight and because of this calorie restriction we are stressing ourselves out a little bit which will then help increase certain activity and nad plus activity and maybe this is a good way to do it first calorie restrict and then see if you can fast a little bit here and there
0: i like that approach and you bring up an important point about uh, the lifestyle changes, the flexibility that you can have if you're still looking for these um, fasting benefits, that it doesn't have to be breakfast that you skip, perhaps it's lunch, perhaps it's dinner. And then if, if those options really aren't practical for you, calorie restriction in general might be a better choice to get started. So I'm curious, what are the hallmarks of a person who has healthy NAD plus levels, and can we start talking about the the reason why we need to supplement with things like NR and NMN as we age, because NAD plus levels are going down. So what does healthy NAD plus offer us, and then what are what are signs of, of NAD plus levels that might need some extra
1: assistance? Well, again, quoting David Sinclair, if we get rid of all of our NAD plus levels, then we're dead in 30 seconds. So clearly the hallmark of someone with proper NAD plus levels is a healthy, alive human being. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) I don't think if we look at something like Tonga Dali, where we're really increasing testosterone levels, you see a lot of pronounced things happening. I think with NAD+, it's not necessarily that, especially if you're a little bit younger, if you take NMN or nicotinamide riboside, that you have this, wow, oh my God, I'm energized, I'm feeling good kind of feeling. You might not necessarily get it because your NAD plus levels might be pretty good already, but because you need NAD for everything, probably everyone can stand to benefit from a bit of extra NAD plus. So for me, I'm 27 years old, probably have decent NAD plus levels and Sirtuin levels even though during COVID I definitely engaged in more sedentary lifestyles and got bored and ate a little bit more than I used to so maybe because of that my NAD plus levels aren't as great and I did notice that when I started taking NAD plus I did notice more energy. Uh, NR or NMN Or sorry when I started taking NAD plus precursors which were nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide, I noticed a couple things. One of them was I did feel like I had more physical energy. Uh, when I work out now, then I don't feel as much muscle soreness the next day. This mm. is something living a bit of a sedentary lifestyle during COVID, not being able to go to the gym or or really not being able to leave my apartment a, a whole lot. Getting back into exercise after that, I got really big muscle soreness. Of course, I was also thinking I was still at the level I was at before COVID, so I would go and exercise really heavily and feel good about myself and then feel really, really sore. But I feel like after I started taking nicotinamide riboside, NMN, and doing it for a while, because it does take a while actually for the NAD Plus levels to build up, it's not going to be an immediate thing, it will take a few weeks, maybe even a few months to get significant elevation of NAD Plus with these precursors. But what I noticed is, one, I was recovering faster from workouts, two, I had more physical energy for those workouts, and three, I actually feel more motivated to move around and be active. I like this, my body kind of vibrating energy feeling makes it a lot harder to sit down. I actually want to get up and move around a little bit. So that's, an, that's I think, a really interesting effect.
0: Those are great benefits. And and it's, it's important, I think, to emphasize that these NAD plus precursors are not going to necessarily have an acute effect when you take them, like the first time you take it, or maybe within the first couple of weeks. Uh, these benefits are going to build up over time. So that's something that's important to keep in mind. Uh, But going off of your experience, it's also exciting to know that these NAD Plus precursors can be beneficial for people who are looking to optimize their workout stack, uh, people who are in the process of training for different kinds of events or sports, um, just people who are living an active lifestyle and want to have the energy and the motivation to push hard and to kind of level up in your workouts. And even though these precursors aren't going to have acute effects, the long-term effects of taking these and the long-term effects of your workouts can be seen.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I, as a 27-year-old, even though I probably don't really need to be taking these NAD Plus precursors, still do because with all of the different environmental factors, we we look at these things especially with aging as well in, in a more utopian world than we probably live in. We're dealing with a lot more air pollution, microplastics, all sorts of things. We're not totally sure what that does to NAD plus levels as far as I'm concerned. We do know that certain environmental air pollutants do increase oxidative stress and they increase inflammation throughout the body and brain. and nad plus is also important for uh, handling oxidation and handling inflammation and maybe some of the enzymes that consume nad plus like the sirtuins are consuming more nad plus because there are more uh, these stressors from our environment so I'm not sure if a lot of this hey if you're young you're healthy kind of stuff really works anymore Uh, which is a bit of a scary thought I, I think for young people but moving forward we are dealing with more environmental stressors potentially and this is one of the reasons why I will just take something like this because I get positive effects from it the research is all there I think having just supra physiological levels of NAD plus is probably good anyways and you won't achieve this without supplementation so I am probably in this level now where my NAD plus levels are higher than they ought to be for someone my age which is probably a great thing so with that in mind though when you are older let's say 40 50 then NAD plus levels will definitely be going down already and 60 70 80 it will consistently keep going down and down and down so the older you get then start thinking about NAD plus precursor supplementation because it will help reverse some of these things that get lost with age and it will have a rejuvenating effect and I keep mentioning David Sinclair but David Sinclair really is an authority on this subject when it comes to NMN and sirtuins and resveratrol and stuff like that but if you look at him too he's in his 50s and he looks very healthy and he says he feels very healthy and very young and he's actually uh, developed I think he works together with with a few different companies and researchers and they've discovered this thing the, the Horvath's clock and it can determine your biological age and David Sinclair has said I think his biological age is closer to like a 23 year old than a 53 year old or something like
0: that. That's pretty incredible.
1: And he thinks it's mostly because of his he takes one gram of resveratrol a day and one gram of nmn a day which by the way are quite high doses our nmn is not that high of a dose you can definitely take a high dose like this in low doses and david sinclair even says this himself in some of the research he's done even lower doses like what we have in our capsules which i believe is 200 or 250 milligrams even with those low doses after consistent supplementation you will see your NAD plus levels go up but if you take these much higher doses which you can definitely take our uh, product in this higher dose as well it will be a little bit expensive but if you really want those high levels of NAD plus especially if you're aging a little bit it seems like this might be a really ideal dose and if you look at David Sinclair and you see what he looks like you can tell that this is a, a very healthy 53 year old and He's taking high doses of vitamin and resveratrol, so his NAD plus activity and sirtuin activity should be quite good. He also fasts quite a lot and exercises, so makes sense. But I think this is a really good strategy for anyone who is starting to, to climb the age ladder a little bit. Start upping your NAD plus levels.
0: As a preventative measure and also as a way to have benefits for your energy levels, uh, for cognition, and for a couple of other functions that we'll discuss too. Um, Something that came up a lot in our questions from Reddit, which I'm curious about discussing, is the benefits of NAD plus on fertility.
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing. Again, it shows that NAD is everywhere and it's important for everything. So again, to answer your question, what does someone look like who's taking NAD precursors? It's a healthy, properly functioning human being. And when we look at ovaries, ovaries over time, especially the oocytes, which are specialized cells that turn into viable eggs at, at a certain point, Those are sensitive to changes in NAD plus levels. When NAD plus levels are low, oocytes start dying off. When NAD plus levels are high, oocytes remain and they play a very important role in fertility. The older we get, we just simply lose these oocytes and we we lose a lot of other cells within the ovaries, like granulosa cells, which are also important for fertility. And it seems like oocyte dysfunction can be rescued to a certain degree with elevated NAD plus levels and this is some pretty new research it came out in 2020 is when I really first started seeing some of this research pop up looking at we are getting older and older when we're having children so and we've talked about this in our uh, previous podcast that are men and women different with in, in terms of supplementation we discussed a little bit there about how we are getting older and older when we're having children. Maybe 50 years ago was really common to have children in your early 20s. Now it's really common to have children even in your late 30s. So the older we get, we need to focus a little bit on fertility. And thinking as well about just our environments kind of going to shit, and this might have negative effects as well on just bodily functions. Maybe that becomes an issue for fertility as well, but potentially one of the answers to this is elevating your NAD plus levels, especially considering the age thing. So I think this is really fascinating. Supplementing with something like NMN and nicotinamide riboside, even though it doesn't have hormonal effects or anything like that, it can protect the cells that are crucial for Fertility And it seems that elevating NAD plus levels here seems to have a really great effect on fertility.
0: That's exciting and good to know when thinking about uh, the other supplements that we've discussed on previous podcast episodes, that these NAD plus precursors aren't necessarily having um, specifically hormonal effects, but these NAD plus precursors are benefiting our health overall which has significant contributions to
1: fertility and the process. And thinking about it, in that sense too, being fertile and being able to, to carry a, a, a feed as a child, your body also needs to be strong and, and healthy and resilient. And if NAD plus levels are a part of this, not only would higher NAD plus levels help, Enhance fertility; it would likely also make pregnancy easier. I definitely don't want to recommend supplementing NMN or nicotinamide riboside during pregnancy, as I'm not sure if any studies have been done on it. Maybe NMN and NR, when supplemented, have some sort of teratogenic effect, and I so definitely don't take that as take NMN and NR during pregnancy. But just thinking about NAD plus levels potentially being high before pregnancy to enhance fertility could maybe also enhance the first stages of pregnancy.
0: This is a really interesting subject and definitely something that deserves uh, some more research. So thank you for opening that door. And I'm curious to see what kind of information uh, might be on the other side.
1: Definitely. And if there are any researchers listening right now and your area of expertise is pregnancy, I would love to see a study on changing NAD plus levels as pregnancy progresses. Maybe it's already there, actually. I haven't looked into it, so I will look into that, because it seems interesting. And it seems interesting, too, what's happening with the NAD plus levels in a developing fetus. What's happening with NAD plus levels in an infant? How high are those? I imagine that if they are decreasing later in life, they might be astronomically high in fetuses and infants and young children.
0: Yeah, a very very interesting topic to discover. So now we're going to dive into the specifics of what are sirtuins and how they are contributing to this NAD plus process in our cells and throughout our bodies.
1: So as we hit on a little bit earlier, the sirtuins are a class, a family of signaling proteins that use NAD plus as a precursor. So that basically means if we see it uh, like as a car or something the sirtuin is the car and it's not going anywhere unless we put fuel in it and the fuel is the nad plus so with nad plus sirtuin activity is possible without nad plus sirtuin activity is not possible and the sirtuins one of the big things they do is they deacetylate proteins which is really important in terms of dna replication cellular health um, metabolic health the way it processes glucose, I believe, too, but also has a lot of cardiovascular benefits. So high levels of protein acetylation is not good. So we we want this activity to be lower, which is why we want sirtuin activity to be high. But this is interesting. We can increase NAD plus levels. And when we increase NAD plus levels, inadvertently, we are increasing sirtuin activity because... NAD+ plus is necessary for sirtuin to become activated so if we provide more NAD+ plus, then in theory we get more sirtuin activity and we do however if we pair NAD+ plus with something that increases sirtuin activity or increases the expression or production of these sirtuin proteins then NAD+ plus can become more effective and this is why David Sinclair takes resveratrol. Resveratrol is a really good sirtuin activator and it upregulates sirtuins. However, and this is where I will critique maybe a little bit David Sinclair, he discovered resveratrol having this action more than a decade ago. I think he, he says he's been taking resveratrol for already 15 years and he discovered it before this. So, David Sinclair is very convinced about resveratrol and it makes sense that he's using it because he's constantly using it in research studies and on himself so he's probably a little bit biased towards resveratrol at this point in time. But resveratrol is a little bit of a tough molecule to work with because it can exist in various different forms and it is sensitive to degradation so first of all you need transresveratrol trans can degrade, and when it degrades, you can get these metabolites that apparently can cause diarrhea, and unfortunately, I recently experienced this myself when we were beta testing some resveratrol. I think I got some that was a little bit oxidized and did indeed cause some diarrhea effects. So resveratrol with a high dosage, relatively high cost, difficult to keep stable, it's not the most ideal compound to utilize, I think, we, or to be consuming in high amounts, perhaps. Yeah, if it if it's completely stable, then it's okay. But how do we keep it stable? I do still think we we will be coming out with a resveratrol product at some point because it is a a very interesting compound, but in terms of it being the only Sirtwin activator or modulator that is really looked at when it comes to the whole NMN and nicotinamide riboside and NAD plus story is a bit of a shame because if you start looking for other natural products that have an activity on Sirtwins you will be met by more research than you can consume uh, just to give you a bit of a Insight into that for this podcast, I always do a lot of research and compile a lot of research studies. And for the Certwin part of the my research study tracker, I can see that I have forty studies in there. And these forty studies are all on products that we actually carry already. So, Certwin activators, Certwin upregulators are prolific in nature it seems and if we go back to the stressed plant theory where plants are producing these compounds that maybe if we consume them mimics stress in us then it makes sense that a lot of different plants produce these type of compounds and this is the case so let's go through this list i compiled with some of the different products that we carry that could be good additions to an nmn NR stack. One of the first ones we'll look at is actually Panamax. And there's a research study looking at Shengmai San, which is a traditional Chinese medicine formulation which we based Panamax on. Panamax and Shengmai San, the core of it really is that it contains Panax ginseng and it contains Schisandra shinensis. And Schizandra chinensis contains compounds like schizandrin A or the schizandrols, which all seem to have positive effects on sirtuin activity. They all upregulate sirtuin activity. So schizandra chinensis itself is a good sirtuin activity upregulator. Panax ginseng, almost all of the ginsenosides are also sirtuin activators. And, and this is mostly for sirtuin 1. And, and this is also mostly where resveratrol works. So one of the main things you use resveratrol for is to activate certain one and shangmai-san or Panamax or any of our Panax ginseng products, by the way, or just chinensis by itself should act as a good way to upregulate certain activity and would stack well likely then with nicotinamide mononucleotide, nicotinamide riboside And spoiler alert, I do take Panamax, so when I take NMN and nicotinoide riboside, I am taking it together with something that already enhances certain activity. So maybe it's working a little bit better in me already, just because of that. Now moving on, and actually a product we we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, alpha-lipoic acid, is... Also, really good at stimulating SIRT1 activity, but it also enhances SIRT3 activity, which—that's uh,
0: the more important of the sirtuins that we discussed earlier on.
1: Yeah, it, it, important in the sense that it's in the mitochondria and it helps with bi- uh, um, mitochondrial biogenesis, which means that we can basically generate more mitochondria. More mitochondria, we can produce more energy. So, SIRT3, I think. All of the, the certs are probably equally important. For me, I would say CERT3 for some of the purposes we're looking at as a nootropics company, CERT3 is really interesting to us and maybe the most important for nootropic purposes because it's enhancing mitochondrial health and activity. And we know already that alpha lipoic acid is really good for mitochondrial activity. This is a, a big use for this product, actually. So it makes sense that. S- alpha-lipoic acid activates both SIRT1 and specifically SIRT3 because this might be where some of its mitochondrial benefits are coming from. In addition to that, alpha-lipoic acid also activates AMPK, which is another factor that when it gets activated, it mimics calorie restriction or fasting. And actually, it doesn't necessarily mimic it. It mimics it if you activate it with something that's not fasting or calorie restriction like hesperidin or alpha lipoic acid but when this gets activated we have better sirtuin activity so AMPK seems to modulate the activity of the sirtuins. so what you really want actually is higher levels of NAD plus higher levels of uh, sirtuin activity and higher levels of AMPK activity they all work hand in hand so having alpha lipoic acid which activates and upregulates SIRT1, SIRT3, and AMPK is pretty fantastic. So this would be a really good option, again, to take alongside nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide. Then if we go a little bit further too, with, even with uh, alpha-lipoic acid, there is another protein which ha- works downstream from the cert twins. And this It's a very long name. I'll try not to butcher it too much. It's called the peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma coactivator 1-alpha. Or PGC-1-alpha for short. Yeah, let's go with that one. So PGC-1-alpha responds to certain activity and has beneficial... Uh, oxidation regulating effects has positive effects on muscle health and things like that. So it, it's also a really popular target for oxidation regulating compounds and alpha-lipoic acid as we likely all know is one of the most highly recommended oxidation regulating compounds out there. So it makes sense that alpha-lipoic acid also in, in addition to activating SIRT1, SIRT3, AMPK, it also seems to activate directly PGC1 alpha. So it's a really nice, complete picture of certain wind activity, oxidation, inflammation, working together with NAD. It seems like if you take NMN and NR and you add alpha lipoic acid on top, it kind of supercharges the whole stack.
0: And you're hitting a lot of different targets with alpha lipoic acid.
1: Yeah. And with alpha-lipoic acid, similar to resveratrol, you do have some stability issues, but they're easy to rectify, like with NAR-ALA or the cyclodextrin-ALA that we just released tablets of. Oh, and actually we have optima LA too, which contains both uh, NAR-ALA and cyclodextrin-ALA and sesame extract to make it work a little bit better. But ALA together with an NMN or an R stack would work really well because it's hitting these CERT wins AMPK, and PGC-1-alpha. Moving on to some other ones, uh, Honokeol, which is in uh, Magnolia Bark Extract and is in our Magnolia Bark Extract in very high concentrations, is a very good CERT 3 activator as well, and I think upregulates CERT 3 uh, protein levels too. So this is another interesting one where you have this nice mood-boosting calming effect, but then you also have this really interesting metabolic advantage to to health thing going on.
0: That surprises me because when I've taken Magnolia Bark in the past, I've taken it as a calming supplement. So it's interesting that it is activating the SIRT3 uh, because I associate extra mitochondrial production with lots of physical energy. Um, But my experience with taking magnolia bark has been that it's very calming. So maybe there's a little bit to be uh, unraveled there in my own experience of of the supplement compared to my idea of what mitochondrial production actually
1: means. Absolutely. And what we were talking about earlier, how do you actually classify NAD plus levels going up or more mitochondrial activity? And I get asked this sometimes too, like, how do you determine the cellular energy effect? And one thing to remember is it is not a psychological stimulating effect so even though magnolia bark is really strongly relaxing it might still be enhancing cellular activity and you wouldn't necessarily notice it because you are not competing two different psychological effects, psychological stimulation and psychological relaxation, what you are contrasting is psychological relaxation and an increase in ATP, just your body basically working a little bit better. So maybe you get really chill, but if you go for a run, then maybe you will have a, a better run overall. But really what's more important with something like Hanokiol? that if you take it long term because of the SIRT3 activity enhancement and because SIRT3 enhances mitochondrial biogenesis then after consistent supplementation with henokiole you will have more mitochondria which maybe at that point you will start noticing more physical energy or just being able to perform better workouts because you're taking this calming supplement. So it is it is interesting to think about it, and it is interesting to separate like...
0: Our perception of what the, what the supplement is doing versus what it's actually doing within our bodies and our cells.
1: Yeah, and I just want to remind everyone, if you are taking NMN and NR and you are expecting a stimulant effect, you will be disappointed. It's not going to have a stimulant effect. Okay, so now let's move on to curcumin, probably another one, Erica, that you are familiar with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really like taking Curawhite, especially after workouts or extra, extra stressful physical activity, because it definitely helps my recovery.
1: And maybe the, the enhanced recovery is because curcumin activates CERT1.
0: That would make sense.
1: So, this is another good compound that can be taken. This one has some bioavailability issues but they can be overcome and they can be overcome pretty easily. So, Longvida for example would be a really good choice or Curawhite or any of these other
0: or curcumin and piperine.
1: Curcumin and piperine also works well I think for the higher dose of curcumin that you get and with the enhancement for piperine. This is a really good supplement to take, but if you really want to make sure that the curcumin is getting to your cells, where you probably need for the sirtuin activation. I would feel a little bit more comfortable probably going with something like Long Vita so I can also get some of the curcumin in my brain. That's what Long Vita is good at. And I think having extra sirtuin activity in your brain is really nice too. Which is another interesting thing to think about if we're looking at sirtuin activators, are they crossing the blood brain barrier? And that's something we actually know about Honokyo too you have those relaxing effects because it's making it into the central nervous system, which means that because it's in the central nervous system, Honokio can likely increase mitochondrial biogenesis in the brain, which is good for cognitive function.
0: Absolutely. So let's keep going down this list because I have a a sneak preview of what's coming
1: next. Yeah, so curcumin actually also enhances SIRT3 expression, uh, mostly in the liver though, but that's also really good to have. But mostly... Curcumin, good for cert one maybe good for cert 3 Now, and this one really surprised me, Aroxylen A. So Eroxalin A is in Subroxy.
0: One of my personal favorite supplements.
1: And Aroxylen A mainly functions as a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. So for this one, it would make sense because it's stimulating already and you get this beneficial SIRT-1 effect. So, Auroxilin-A specifically enhances CERT 3 and CERT one activity, and it also seems to have a positive effect, again, on PGC1-alpha, and in a lot of recent studies, they're looking at Auroxilin-A specifically for this purpose, and they seem to think it is a very potent compound for this. And again, if we think about this, Auroxilin-A is active in low doses, I think if we take um, subroxy subroxy contains 10% oreroxalin A. I like to take 100 milligrams, Erica, what's your favorite dose?
0: 100 milligrams or 125 if I'm really feeling the need for a bit of extra.
1: So you're getting between 10 to 12 and a half milligrams of Oroxalin A. I'm usually getting about 10 milligrams of oreroxalin A and this has a pretty powerful effect already and it's getting into the central nervous system because it has a psychologically stimulating stimulating effect. With this in mind, if you compare something like Aroxilin-A to resveratrol, where resveratrol, you need a gram. That's significantly more than 10 milligrams. With resveratrol, the cost then also goes through the roof. It's harder to keep stable, etc, etc. Not a very ideal compound when you put it up to something that has an astronomically lower dose, lower cost per dose, no issues really with degradation or sensitivity that that we can see so pretty ideal compound and maybe it's not as strong as resveratrol for enhancing cert one activity but it certainly seems to have a very very significant effect on Cert 3 and CERT one and again CERT 3 is a really nice one to have activated more in your brain which something like aroxylen A because it's making its way into the brain should be able to pull this off. So that's a really cool one, I think.
0: Definitely. Are there any other combinations that you would make, or other products that stack well with the NAD plus precursors?
1: Yeah. So I I I think we are only on uh, yeah study twenty one here. Oh so boy. We we've got a few <laughs> a few <laughs> more to go, and and this is the point I'm trying to make here too is that resveratrol is not doing something special resveratrol is doing something that's done by a lot of plants and it's likely being done by a lot of plants because it's mimicking the stress thing and it it all makes a lot of sense but what i'm trying to demonstrate here too is when it comes to stacking your nad plus stack with something that helps enhance certain activity you are not just stuck with resveratrol there are other interesting options that are backed up by research potentially not human clinical research in the same degree as resveratrol has been but it looks promising and these compounds are maybe a little bit more predictable and accessible so that's always good so moving on through the list another compound that seems to be good for certain activation is salidroside and tyrosol and both of those are present in rhodiola rosea so tyrosol upregulates certain one activity which is really nice because that means that there's more CERT one protein that NAD plus can interact with, so that's always good. Upregulation is nice in this full picture. And then if we look at salidroside, salidroside also enhances CERT one activity and it enhances PGC one alpha activity. Again, pretty low doses on here, and you can find them in our salidrosol product, which is pure tyrosol mixed with pure salidroside, or you can actually get a rhodiola rosea extract that's high in salidroside, and just to verify that rhodiola rosea itself could have a positive effect on sirtuins. I did some research there and in fact if you look at just a rhodiola rosea extract which should be quite high in salidroside, you see enhanced SIRT1 activity too. So again a really good one to take alongside NAD plus enhancing supplements.
0: This list is getting very, very long, but I'm looking forward to the additional products that we're going to talk about. Uh, The next one being berberine.
1: Yeah, and this is a really fascinating one, and I actually just picked up a jar of uh, berberine powder to experiment with, which, by the way, tastes really bad, so I would uh, recommend if you are playing around with the powder to get some oblate discs. This will make it really easy to take it. Don't try taking just a powder scoop in your mouth or something and washing it down it doesn't really work it sticks to your tongue tastes really bad but berberine is interesting for a number of reasons one it is a very good activator of ampk and ampk enhances the activity of the cert so that's good however berberine also actually has a direct effect on cert one and pgc one alpha so it upregulates their activity so that's good but even more importantly is berberine decreases glucose levels. So it, it, it's really good at enhancing glucose metabolism. And glucose seems to play a big role here too. When glucose levels are lower, when we're fasting or caloric restriction, then cert activity and NAD plus levels go up. So mimicking this with something that lowers glucose levels after we eat a meal, for example, while also activating AMBK and SIRT1, taking berberine alongside an NAD+ enhancing stack would actually be a really, really good idea. And the way I'm going to integrate it into my stack is I'm going to take it at night. So if I do end up eating dinner, I will take it after dinner, and then that should lower my glucose levels as I sleep and fast, which should then help enhance more NAD+ synthesis and more SIRT1 activity. So. I'm really excited by this discovery that berberine has an effect on sirtuins and AMPK, which I already knew. But the sirtuin thing was new to me, and then the glucose effects, it seems like a really logical thing to add into an NAD plus stack.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other products that you would consider combining for like the ultimate NAD plus stack?
1: Yeah, so there are still a, a few on this list. Uh, that that we can go through, and I'll just run through them real quick now because it is getting a little bit long. So, if we look at doxahexanoic acid (DHA) from fish oil, that improve uh, upregulates CERT one expression. So that's really good. More CERT one proteins around that means there's more that NAD plus can interact with. Just fish oil itself, with its complex mixture of omega three fatty acids, has been shown to upregulate CERT one levels and activity. And then if we look at EPA, which is another fatty acid present in fish oil, then we see that that actually has an effect on cert 3 levels and enhances mitochondrial uh, potential. So those are really cool. And those are more for cert one So all of the ones I just listed, you can pick one or maybe one or two, combine them with NMN and NR and then you're getting this NAD+, which can then be used by the sirtuins, and you're enhancing sirtuin activity, so you are getting more out of that NAD+, than you were without enhancing sirtuin activity, so that's really cool. We can go one other direction though, and then we can kind of make the bridge here, so curacetin, which is another flavonoid, also has a positive effect on sirtuins, so it upregulates sirtuin activity, that's great. What it also does is it inhibits an enzyme called CD38 and CD38 is another enzyme that consumes NAD+. But we d- don't really need high levels of CD38 activity so we can actually inhibit it. And when we inhibit CD38 it means that the NAD that we are producing stays around longer because it's not being eaten up by CD38. So curacetin is a good CD38 inhibitor and an even better CD38 inhibitor appears to be apigenin. And I've actually been taking apigenin with my NMN and NR2 and I feel like it makes it work better. And it makes it work better because of this CD38 inhibitory effect. So for the ultimate stack, you can either wait till we come out with ours, which I'm sure a lot of you will be very impressed with. But for the time being... You can stack NMN, NR, or both with Apigenin or Curacetin, or both. And then you can stack that with one or two of these Sirtwin activity enhancers. And then you really get the complete picture. And if you were going to choose one, I would probably choose one that has AMPK Activator activity too. Or maybe combining two. If one doesn't have AMPK Activator activity but it does have certain activity enhancement then maybe combining one that has ampk activator ability like berberine with something that's more pure for the wins like curcumin would be a really good solution
0: that is an amazing list and definitely gives lots of different options for kind of customizing and selecting the targeted effect that you are looking for Uh, when it comes to this whole NAD Plus process. So starting with these NAD Plus precursors, nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide, and then maybe making some combinations, some stacks for yourself of products you haven't tried before, or just knowing that some of these daily products, especially like fish oil or, you know, maybe Subroxy for some of you, that these are actually having beneficial effects for the NAD Plus precursor supplements too. So all in all, a great segue and idea kind of bank for you when considering how to optimize your NAD Plus levels.
1: Absolutely. And I would always recommend with NAD Plus level, uh, NAD Plus enhancing supplements to probably stack it because you will get more out of it because it is a complex system. It is used all over the body. So giving it what it needs to perform to its highest degree like extra sirtuin cert- activity or AMPK activity is a good idea and you can get more out of NAD plus enhancement and and that's the strategy I'm following for myself. And I did take NMN back in the day just at 200 milligrams and didn't really experience much from it. but. Once I started stacking NMN and NR together in Apigenin, then I really started noticing these effects, and inadvertently, I was actually taking Magnolia Bark a little bit here and there, and consistently taking Subroxy, so, and Curcumin, so I was already getting some extra Sirtuin activation, in addition to now dumping more NAD onto them, and that seemed to do something, and I, for the first time, really am noticing something from NAD enhancement, which is nice.
0: That's awesome. So now we are going to transition into the absolute best part of this podcast, which is where we get to answer your questions from Reddit directly. And we've got quite the list of questions. So buckle up because there is a lot more information and insight to be discovered here. And we're going to get started with this first question. This first question comes from Rebel Musician. And their question is, can younger people enjoy the benefits of increasing NAD plus levels to the same extent as older folks?
1: No, and count yourself lucky, because the reason why older people can experience more benefits from NAD plus boosters is because their NAD plus levels are lower. For younger people, their NAD plus levels are higher, so you don't stand to benefit as much, but if you think about it in the sense that older people are already at a disadvantage because of lower NAD plus levels, then all they're doing is getting back to maybe your baseline. With that in mind though, younger people can still experience benefits from NAD plus enhancing supplements, and I can vouch for this, I'm 27 years old, and taking NAD plus precursors has positive effects on me. So things like cellular energy a little bit, which It's hard to really quantify what that is, but I just feel a little bit more energy in my body. I feel a little bit more awake, like I sleep better. I think my glucose metabolism is probably a little bit better. I think I recover faster from exercise, so there are definitely still some benefits. And the real benefit being that if you are a younger person, but maybe even a person in their 40s and you're making that transition into an age where maybe your NAD plus levels are going down supplementing NAD plus or supplementing with NAD plus precursors at this point would be beneficial because then you wouldn't necessarily have this drop of NAD plus you can just keep it more consistent so you're not trying to correct a big NAD plus deficiency later in life you can kind of just cruise through and always maintain optimal NAD plus levels
0: Awesome. That's a super clear response. It makes a lot of sense too. So we're moving on to our next question, and this one comes from Increasingly Trippy. And the first question is, I've seen it mentioned that NR or NMN should be taken with TMG. Is that correct?
1: Yes and no. So TMG is a methyl donor, trimethylglycine, and NMN and NR supplementation can both mop up some methyl groups. So it seems like it's a good idea to take trimethylglycine with NMN or NR or other methylation donors or methylation enhancers like MTHFR which is a optimized version of uh, vitamin B11 so folate that will help a little bit too and I have noticed that when I take the omega tau just a single capsule which contains MTHFR together with NMN and NR it does seem to work a little bit better and I've been trying NMN and NR with some trimethylglycine don't think I noticed a whole lot from the trimethylglycine, but maybe it works a little bit better. We're still looking into this a little bit, developing a new NAD plus stack. So we'll see what happens and we'll see what happens with more long-term administration of TMG with NMN and NR. Something that's important to remember though, is that this is a pretty new concept. So for, I think David Sinclair is one of the people who started doing this a little bit too. But remember, he's been taking this stuff for 15 years already and not with betaine, and it was working fine, I think. So I do think maybe it's a bit of a new fad, and we'll have to see how relevant it really is. But there does seem to be some good evidence for this being a good combination. But you don't have to take NMN and NR with trimethylglycine and betaine.
0: Really good to know. And then the follow-up question Which is a bit general, but still relevant to ask. How solid is the science on NAD supplements?
1: Incredibly uh, solid. So if you listen to the whole podcast, you'll, you'll hear a lot of scientific information there. I guess one thing we didn't really touch on is the bioavailability of NMN and NR. And I guess we did touch on it a little bit, but I'll expand a little bit more here. There are now human studies looking at NMN and NR supplementation and in these people after a few weeks, we see increased levels of NAD+ so it's working. And all it's pretty irrefutable that NAD+ is really, really important. So I think based on the fact that NMN and NR can boost NAD+ levels and we need NAD+ for pretty much every process in our bodies, I think, And then that paired with real research showing positive effects in human beings of various different ages, I think the science is really solid. And logically, it makes a lot of sense that you would want to supplement with an NAD plus precursor.
0: The science is there, and you've heard a lot of it in this podcast explained step by step. So that makes a lot of sense. We're moving on to the next question, which comes from Roraj and the Garaj. And this question is, does adenine intake ever really become a bottleneck for NAD+. What if I'm also taking a dopamine production boosting stack, let's say tyrosine, carcetin, and forskolin, a process that requires CAMP? Would trying to boost both NAD+, and dopamine production together bottleneck on adenine?
1: Mm, probably not. I did do a little bit of research into this. It- it doesn't look like adenine is really a rate-limiting step in any of these processes, and I also just want to clarify that cAMP stands for cyclic adenosine monophosphate. In addition to this, I'm not sure if we're consuming a lot of adenine through our diet. Um, it, it does look like so big part of the synthesis for adenine is coming from inosine monophosphate, which is being derived from amino acids like glycine and a few other dietary amino acids. So if there is a bottleneck somewhere, it would be with amino acid intake, formation of inosine monophosphate, and then purine metabolism, which then generates adenine and guanine, which is then used in DNA. So it's a compound that is very abundant in our bodies. We'd be really screwed without adequate levels of adenine and in none of the research I'm seeing uh, are they looking at increasing adenine levels to increase NAD plus levels so I I really don't see any conflict here
0: good to know now moving on to the next question from a user who has a very long username so we're not going to uh, say these numbers and letters but their question is when to take NMN or NR to avoid insomnia
1: just take it in the morning and in fact it doesn't really have any impact on sleep negative impacts if anything it might have a positive impact on sleep because of the circadian regulating effect but if you have taken it later in the day and you have experienced problems with sleep then perhaps just take it in the morning. And I would say this with anything, if anything is keeping you up, just take it in the morning, because the morning is really far away from the night. So it makes logical sense that that's where you would take something that can keep you up.
0: Definitely. And a follow-up question to this is, how much NMN to take?
1: Really depends on what you want to achieve. There's research showing that if you take 200 milligrams or 250 milligrams or so, then your levels go up considerably. So lower doses work, I'm taking 250 milligrams of NMN, but then on top of that I'm also taking 300 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside, so I'm getting uh, 550 milligrams of NAD precursors. I know that David Sinclair personally is taking one gram of NMN, so the dosing range is pretty flexible. See what works best for you, maybe try combining nicotinamide riboside with NMN, I seem to get slightly better effects when doing this stack. I haven't personally tried a gram of NMN yet, so I am quite curious to try that. Maybe I'll try that tomorrow.
0: I am also curious to hear about your experience trying a gram, um, but my guess is that it probably won't have any acute, noticeable effects.
1: Well, I do actually notice some acute effects from it now, especially when taking nicotinamide, riboside, NMN, and apigenin together. I have. A sense of physical energy, almost like my body's vibrating a little bit. I I feel more awake, especially when I take it in the morning. So I do imagine that taking a gram of NMN will probably have some acute effects for me, but we'll see.
0: Absolutely, to be determined. Another follow-up question, which we already answered um, a little bit earlier, is, is TMG and or resveratrol really required?
1: Again, yes and no. It helps. It's not required, but I think more so for resveratrol or some of the other sirtuin activators we talked about, I do think it is very beneficial to take a sirtuin activator or a sirtuin upregulator together with NAD plus precursors, because then it will just work better. And on top of this, don't forget about AMPK activators like hesperidin either, because those will help everything along as well. But it is... Not entirely necessary. Just taking NMN or NR or a combination of the two will have positive effects. Cool,
0: good to know. And another follow-up question, which is very relevant to what we're discussing right now, is how do you know when you're taking enough or too little of these NAD plus precursors?
1: Yeah, you you don't. Uh, Unless you can do some sort of blood test to look for your NAD plus levels, you kind of just have to rely on the existing human research that's there and follow the recommended doses. It's kind of similar to taking a multivitamin or magnesium. You know, it's it's educated guesses. We are taking the doses that are in the research that should have an effect on a general, an average human being. It might be a little bit different for you. So unless you are doing blood tests for vitamins, minerals, I, I think you can do a blood test for NAD plus levels. Unless you are doing that, it's really hard to know if you're taking too much or too little. I think if anything, if you keep your NMN dose under a gram and above probably 200, 250 milligrams, then you're right in that sweet spot. And if you just go with our recommended doses, this will probably be the ideal level where it's not too low and not too high and it's smack dab right in the middle there.
0: Awesome. And now another really interesting question, and something we haven't talked about so far in the podcast, but I do see this pop up in NED Plus Conversations. Can you get away with just flushing niacin instead? Nope. Awesome. And then last but not least in this series of questions is any interactions with anything else, Nootropics Depot cells, that's popular. And we discussed a lot of different products that interact with... NAD plus precursors earlier. So you can go back through these YouTube chapters and look through all of the different products that we discussed. But just to recap really quickly, Emil, can you tell us a little bit about interactions, especially beneficial interactions with these NAD plus precursors?
1: Yeah, so one good one would be apigenin or curcumin. Those are both CD38 inhibitors. That's an enzyme that consumes NAD but it's not necessarily a super important enzyme for its activity. So we can inhibit it a little bit, and when we inhibit CD38, then we get higher levels of NAD+. So this is a really just logical view. Are just focused on enhancing NAD+ levels, this is a great thing to stack with it. But then we talked a lot about sirtuin activators and sirtuin upregulators, similar to resveratrol, and those could all be really good to take. And we did go very in depth there, but just to list them off. Panamax, Panax ginseng, Shisandra chinensis, Honokio from our magnolia bark, uh, alpha lipoic acid which you can find in Optum ALA, in our NAR ALA, in our Cyclodextrin ALA, uh, Curcumin which we have multiple different forms of too, curawhite uh, which is a Cyclodextrin based curcumin supplement, that one will be good and you can use it in beverages, Long Vida, which will reach the brain a little bit better, just regular old curcumin and piperine capsules so th- there's a lot of different choices and i i'm sure i'm missing a few that we went over but those are kind of the big ones that are sticking out for me oh yeah berberine is a good one uh if you take hesperidin for example that would be a good one because it activates ampk which has synergistic effects with NID plus berberine also does this and berberine uh, regulates glucose levels really nicely so with more regulated glucose levels, potentially there is more NAD plus synthesis happening too, so that would be good. And then something that's not a product but more of a lifestyle choice paired with a bit of fasting or calorie restriction, and that should help enhance NAD plus levels even further.
0: Awesome. So now moving on to our next couple of questions from Quixotic 49. The first question is I'd like to get your thoughts on increasing NAD plus with nicotinic acid, flush niacin, versus NMN, NR, niacinamide, etc. Nicotinic acid is much cheaper and seems to be able to increase NAD without many of the side effects and concerns associated with the other NAD precursors. From my understanding, NMN and NR fuel the salvage pathway, whereas niacin fuels the de novo pathway. The de novo pathway allows NAD to get into cells via GPR-109-alpha-HC-alpha-2.
1: Yeah, there's a reason a lot of research and individuals supplementing with NAD plus precursors are going for NMN and NR, which are significantly more expensive, but there's a good reason. They actually work, and flush niacin doesn't really work, and it's actually not going through the de novo pathway. The de novo pathway, or the kyanurine pathway, is where tryptophan is being turned into NAD plus. Where nicotinic acid comes in is the price handler pathway pathway and that doesn't seem to be super efficient so I wouldn't rely on flushing niacin to give you these effects I think it's important pathway to look at and it's one not necessarily to overlook but it's one that's probably already being fueled nicely by our diet so focus on NMN and NR if you're trying to increase NAD plus levels through supplementation and not nicotinic acid very
0: straightforward answer Alright, the next question is, what do you think of cofactors to help NAD plus production and balance, i.e. other B vitamins, leucine for CERT one activation, arginine, alcar, taurine, NAC, NARALA, TMG, methionine, vitamin C, magnesium, etc.? On the other hand, what about supplements that should be avoided with NAD plus precursors? Curcumin for inactivating PGD2, which is needed for GPR109-alpha-HC-alpha-2 activation.
1: Okay, um, if I'm looking at all of this, we, we actually discussed some of this further back in the podcast. Uh, for example, uh, alpha-lipoic acid and TMG we discussed, so those definitely work well with NAD plus enhancing strategies and so the sirtuin activation. We go very much in depth on this throughout the podcast. So I'd go back there and listen there for for a better answer. Um, When it comes to curacetin actually, curacetin is really good to take together with uh, NAD plus enhancing supplements because curacetin both activates AMPK which will help sirtuins work better. Uh, I believe curacetin also has a mild effect on sirtuins, and in addition to this, curacetin inhibits CD38, which metabolizes NAD+, so when you inhibit CD38, you have more NAD+, around, so Curicetin would be a good one. I honestly can't really think of a whole lot of things that should be avoided with NAD+, supplementation, or NAD+, precursor supplementation, nothing's really jumping to mind right away, I would probably avoid something that reduces NAD plus synthesis. I don't know why you would be taking that in the first place, but if anyone's taking something that inhibits NAD plus synthesis, then yeah... Don't do that.
0: It's just going to cancel out the benefits that you'd be getting from these NAD precursors.
1: Yeah, and plus, it's probably pretty bad to be taking something that's lowering NAD levels, so probably just avoid that altogether.
0: Awesome. All right, and then the final question in this little bundle is why doesn't Nootropics Depot sell nicotinic acid or a B complex to support de novo NAD production? And would we consider selling these in the future?
1: Again, it's not de novo, de novo is the tryptophan pathway or the kyanurine pathway. What you are talking about is the price handler pathway, not a very good pathway uh, by which to enhance NAD+. So nicotinic acid, probably not something you'll be seeing from us, especially because it's so widely available and super cheap, so it'd be really hard to compete there. Uh, I do think niacin has some interesting effects not related to NAD+, plus, so it could be cool to look into if we can make it work. Um, but for NAD+, synthesis, nicotinic acid is not a good one. And then in terms of a B-complex, we actually have one in the works, and this will be really nice. Again, probably not really the best thing to help enhance NAD+, plus synthesis, though. We have better things for that, like NMN, NR, apigenin, and some of the things that work on the sirtuins and AMPK. So... Those would be the things we're looking at. But a B-complex is in the works and will come and will be a really nice but simple B-complex. So I'm looking forward to that one. And I, I am looking forward to adding it to my NMN NR stack, but not necessarily for the reasons of further enhancing NAD plus synthesis.
0: Good to know. So now moving on to our next question, which comes from NetDog. Regarding NMN supplementation and fertility, the following study showed that fertility in mice improved after consuming 0.5 grams of NMN in water for four weeks. They link the study here, and then they follow up by saying, interestingly, this improvement declined when supplementing two grams per day. Thus, if this benefit carries over to humans, it seems it is vital to dose correctly. Not too much, not too little. Based on this study, how much NMN would an average size human woman need to supplement to match the equivalent of 0.5 grams of drinking water in mice? I can't find in the study how much water the mice consumed. Is it simply a matter of if the human weighs 2,000 times the mouse, take 2,000 times what the mice consumed, or do we need to take into account other physiological differences?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting study and interesting to think about because, yeah, I looked through this study too and I can't see anywhere how much they're expecting the mice to drink or if they were even monitoring their consumption in general what you do to go from a from a mouse dose to a human dose you have to take into account body surface area of both organisms and weight and luckily a lot of people have done the hard work for us so there are some uh, good guides on how to very roughly translate a um, a mouse dose to a human dose and you do this by dividing the mouse dose by 12.3 so if we do this for the half gram per liter drinking water then we would basically make ourselves a I guess 40 milligram per liter beverage and just drink this all day but that seems like really low amount because if we look at human studies we see n80 plus increases when we're taking 200 250 milligrams of nmn so unless you're drinking a lot of water five liters a day or so which is quite a lot then you wouldn't be getting a very high concentration of nmn so i'm not sure if this would really work and if we can really look at this study and get any useful information out of it for human dosing I would just stick to the normal human doses that seem to mildly elevate NAD plus levels so 200-250 milligrams.
0: Nice. A little bit challenging uh, to answer in a, a, a definitive or direct way, but we did discuss the benefits of NAD plus precursor supplementation on fertility a little bit earlier in the podcast. So um, it does seem like there are benefits in this area, even though the study may not be the most relevant for comparing directly to uh, human dosage needs.
1: Absolutely. But it is interesting to see that these fertility effects really are there.
0: Awesome. So now we're going to move on to our next set of questions, which comes from Wikirex. And the first question is, what is the relationship between NAD plus and NADH? And I had the same question a little bit earlier, so Emil,
1: yeah, it to it's us. pretty simple. It's a redox pair. So NAD plus gets reduced and then we have NADH. NADH gets oxidized and now we have NAD plus and it just keeps switching back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and then, can
0: you clarify what NADH stands for?
1: Yeah, it's nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, same as NAD, and then a hydrogen. That's what the H stands for. So when it reduces, it just picks up a hydrogen and now you have NADH and then and the interesting thing is NADH can then donate this hydrogen again in the electron transport chain and that's how it also helps generate ATP. So this switching from NAD+ to NADH and then NADH losing its hydrogen and turning back into NAD+ is constantly happening and that's really important and There is also an NAD plus to NADH ratio which means that if your NADH is higher than your NAD plus it means you're probably not producing enough NAD plus and that's why you have a bunch of NADH floating around which is not good. So we seem to always want to maintain a higher ratio of NAD plus to NADH but the interesting thing is we need a lot of NADH too so it's constantly switching between.
0: Awesome. And now the next question is, does NADH become oxidized or otherwise degrade very quickly and easily? I bought some NADH from a doctor who specializes in producing it in Switzerland, but it changed color and seemingly became inactive before I finished the first 10.
1: Yeah, because it is a, a reduced form of NAD+, it would turn back into NAD+, I guess, under oxidation. I'm not totally sure on the chemistry there. So... I'm not sure if NADH will stay stable and then degrade into NAD+, or if NADH then degrades into something else. I'm not totally sure on that. If it's just degrading into NAD+, it's probably a bit of a waste of money. Might as well take something like NMNR that enhances NAD levels, and by enhancing NAD levels, also enhances NADH levels. I have actually tried. NADH myself a few times now and I do really like the effect so I'm definitely going to look into the stability aspect of it uh, because it would be a shame I think the dose for NADH is quite low it's like 10 milligrams so if that 10 milligrams is turning into 10 milligrams of NAD it's probably not absorbing really well although now I'm quite curious about the absorption of NADH as well because it is a fairly large molecule But it does seem like it does something, and I have experienced some interesting effects from it, so interested to keep looking into that.
0: Absolutely. A little bit of a to-be-determined question. And then the final question in this group is, does consuming niacin indirectly increase NAD+, and or NADH? And we've kind of answered this a few times, but...
1: But if we're talking about it indirectly now yes it will enhance NAD plus and it will enhance the the NAD plus to NADH ratio partially because nicotinic acid is able to turn into NAD plus via the price handler pathway it's just not a very efficient pathway but if we are taking some extra niacin or more realistically we are getting niacin from our diet that means that that's one of the pathways by which we can obtain a little bit of NAD plus but it's seems pretty inefficient solely for NAD plus production, so not really the best pathway to go down. It would be really nice. Again, it's cheaper than the rest, but there's a reason the rest is more expensive. One, like we talked about with attaching a phosphate group to NMN can be expensive. Nicotinamide riboside is a little bit cheaper, but these fancier precursors really are necessary if we want to significantly enhance our NAD plus. But indirectly, and in actually directly, a little bit of enhancement can be found by taking nicotinic acid.
0: Good to know. Now we're moving on to our next question from Ty Ham. And this question is, I saw the TMG question here, and I'd like to expand it a bit. If I use NR or NMN, should I also be using trimethylglycine? If so, what ratio or minimum dose of NR slash NMN would need trimethylglycine? How little trimethylglycine for a standard NR-NMN dose? And would other forms of methyl supplements such as methylfolate work? And I think these first two questions, what ratio or minimum dose of NR slash NMN would need TMG, is easy to answer because we already discussed this. You don't need to take trimethylglycine with NR or NMN. and same for the next question, how little TMG for a standard NR-NMN dose. Um, You don't need to take trimethylglycine with NR or NMN for them
1: to be effective. That being said, TMG can have beneficial effects, like we talked about a little bit earlier, but it is uncharted territory. So there's not a whole lot of research on what are the proper doses, so giving that is also a little bit tough, specifically for NAD plus production. We can just look at what is a normal dose for TMG, and those doses are pretty high, they're in the gram range, but they also seem to go as low as 500 milligrams. I have personally been trying out 500 milligrams of TMG with NMN and NR, That seems to work good, especially when I stack it with a little bit of 5-MTHFR, so the methylfolate, and methylfolate does seem to work really well as a methyl donor in this scenario too. Um, Again, like Erica said, it's not necessary for it to work well. It is very much uncharted territory, but it seems like there is something there, and it seems like it can maybe enhance the activity, so it's worth experimenting with a little bit. But on an exact dosage, that's, that's a little bit of a, a guess at this point.
0: All right. And now let's move on to our next question, which comes from Weiwei95032. And their question is, given my outdated understanding of biochemistry, would boosting NAD plus via NMN supplementation translate to essentially better output in exercise for a trained, not aging, but not a spring chicken? say, mid-30s to 40s, and generally healthy population, could it potentially upregulate glycolysis, leading to burning through glycogen stores too quickly and cause a crash? I guess the main question is, how would taking NMN supplementation benefit exercise or physique performance, recovery, energy, sleep, etc.?
1: Great question, and I think this is a really underexplored area for NMN and NR, especially because when NMN and NNR first got popular it got popular with older people looking at it as a longevity aid these people probably weren't necessarily looking at the exercise benefits and the physique benefits you'd be looking at that a little bit more indeed if you are a little bit younger 30 40 50 maybe even but maybe not as much if you're in your 70s or 80s although I've seen some very good 70 and 80 year olds with very strong physiques so it is possible and maybe they are taking NMN and NR in high doses but for a younger person and for myself being 27 years old I have noticed that I seem to have a little bit more ATP kind of feeling like when you've been taking creatine for a while and you just feel like you have a little bit more muscle power which would make sense because NAD plus is necessary for ATP synthesis too so I think this is helping me both with strength and recovery and interestingly enough also motivation to go and work out more like I seem to have more pent up energy in my body like a little bit of this vibrating energy in my body that I want to get out and it feels nice to exercise now it it always feels nice to exercise but it feels extra nice to exercise and I wonder if it has something to do with higher NAD plus levels and I also seem to be recovering faster so that's nice. And so, long story short, I do think that enhancing NAD plus status will be good for physique and physical well-being and strength and all of those things.
0: And then to go through the questions about glycolysis. Um, oh yeah, let's let's just restate their question: Could it potentially upregulate glycolysis, leading to burning through glycogen stores too quickly and causing a crash?
1: So it definitely will burn through glycogen stores or just glucose that we're consuming from our diet because nad plus is necessary in the glycolysis cycle so more nad plus being around more glucose and glycogen is being broken down so yeah maybe if you are really well fasted and you're also taking nmn and nr maybe this could drop those levels a little bit but I think, if anything, our glycogen stores and our glucose levels are often on the higher side anyways, and I've noticed this for myself. It seems like my blood glucose levels, I'm not monitoring myself, maybe I would actually be interested in trying out a continuous glucose monitor at some point, I know those are starting to become a little bit more accessible and popular. But just seeing what happens to my glucose levels when I am taking these NAD plus precursors, I feel like my hunger is more stable, I don't feel like I'm getting as much of a, a tired feeling after a meal, kind of similar to maybe taking something like berberine, so maybe having higher NAD plus levels also means I can process glucose better, which might also be adding to the physique strength thing and recovery thing too, because you also want to be burning through glycogen and glucose there. So interesting thing to consider there. I don't necessarily think it would really be depleting your glycogen stores unless perhaps you are, in a, doing a ketogenic diet or fasting really intensely.
0: Awesome. So now let's move on to our next question, which comes from AK Learner. The question is, what dosage of apigenin is best with NMN? I'm just ordering for the first time and unsure of the different NMN dosages as well, and if that affects the amount of apigenin
1: this really depends on your use case and what other things are in your stack Uh, if you are really trying to maximize as much NAD plus as possible we want more and more cd38 inhibition so logically you would go for the higher dose of apigenin then which is the 200 milligram dose i also find that the 200 milligram dose of apigenin has a nice uplifting, not necessarily stimulating, but a little bit of an energizing effect that I like when paired with just NMN. When you add some other things into the mix like NMN and NR, maybe even curacetin and some of the sirtuin activators, then maybe the 200 milligram dose of apigenin is a little bit overkill. And I've actually tried experimenting with 50 milligram doses of apigenin and slightly larger NAD plus enhancing stacks. And In a larger NAD+, more complex NAD+, enhancing stack, I actually enjoy the 50 milligram dose more. It seems to smooth out the effects a little bit too, so that's nice. But basically, you can go for either dose, but if you are just taking NMN and apigenin together, then go for the higher dose of apigenin, go for the higher dose of uh, NMN. if you look at our site we have two different dosages of NMN one is 125 milligrams and one is 250 milligrams and even though the 125 milligram dose is half of that of the capsules the 125 milligram dose is an enteric coated tablet which some people can't digest the tablet properly and they've pooped out full tablets so this is not good but if enteric coated tablets work for you then people have found that this 125 milligram dose, which is bypassing the stomach and then being released in the intestines, where the SLC12A8 transporter is, which can transport NMN straight into your body, it seems like it works a lot better. And we've had some really positive reports from people. So if you're looking kind of at the optimized side of the spectrum, you can go for that lower 125 milligram dose while still having decent, very, very good effects, effects that can mimic a a much higher dose. The 250 milligram capsules are also great. And based on what David Sinclair is doing, you could even take four of these uh, capsules or tablets at at once, or four capsules, the 250 milligram capsules at once to get a full one gram dose, if you really want to test the upper limit of NMN supplementation.
0: Awesome. So this leads us perfectly into our next question, which comes from Milan cheese two seventy. This question is: What age should one begin taking NMN slash NAD plus? More specifically, at what age is the decline significant enough to start taking these supplements?
1: Hmm, Probably in your thirties or forties would be when the decline starts. Uh, I always like to remember one of my professors in my. Uh, neuroanatomy classes was saying after the age of 30 everything goes downhill so I've always kind of stuck with that that maybe 30 is the turning point where things start going downhill very gently and then it ramps up later in life and if we kind of look at the the average life expectancy of people hundreds of years ago maybe it was under 30 maybe right around 27 years of age so it would make sense that after our 30s things start to decline slowly it's not like we're going from 29 and then we're turning 30 and everything just goes rock bottom it's not that quick it's a very gentle decline that starts right around then probably so if you start taking uh, NAD plus enhancing supplements right around this age that's probably a good strategy that being said even young people can get some benefits from it and case in point myself, I'm 27 years old and I'm taking these supplements and I'm getting really good effects with it. So young people can take it, but if you just want to, um, kind of cushion yourself against this natural age related decline, then probably start somewhere in your thirties, maybe in your forties and go from there.
0: Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And this next question is on this kind of age train that we have going. And this comes from Thanatos X. The question is: What effects would NAD plus supplements and an increase in NAD plus have on the physical appearance of a 20 year old taking the supplement in terms of looking younger than their age? I like this question.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if you can look a whole lot longer younger than 20. Um, <laughs> you're gonna go from looking like a child to looking like. An infant. <laughs> I don't. Uh, uh, I think maybe I'm just starting to uh, creep up to my thirties, So now I'm I'm looking back at when I was twenty, and I I can't imagine wanting to look younger than I was back then, because I always wanted to look a little bit older, tougher.
0: I may be reading this question a little bit wrong, but to me it seems like this this person might be concerned about looking younger when starting to take. These NAD plus precursors, like if they begin taking these supplements, are they going to start looking younger than they are?
1: Yeah, so coming back down to to a more serious uh, discussion on this topic, I think when it comes to skin health, NAD plus can have a positive benefit here, so it can make your skin look a little bit more youthful, so so that would be nice. Uh, Maybe because you're getting some more physical energy, and maybe you can exert some more power in the gym maybe this could help enhance your physique to be a little bit stronger than an average 20 year old could look because this is right around the age probably where testosterone is really at a super nice level growth hormone is at a nice level you probably have a lot more free time to kind of work out and which then you can get maybe a physique of someone that has had more training experience and is a little bit older and is a little bit past the age of 20 while then also having slightly younger, youthful-looking skin, although as a 20-year-old you can't get a whole lot more youthful-looking than that probably already, Um, but it could maybe have a slight positive effect, Um, especially maybe if you've spent a lot of time out in the sun and maybe you've accelerated your skin aging a little bit there, maybe it could help there, so, and with that in mind too, take some NAD+, and then use some more sunscreen or something if that is the case to prevent that from happening.
0: Yeah, so the simple answer I'm getting is basically supplementing with NAD plus precursors at the age of 20 will likely not have extreme effects um, on your youthful appearance, as in it's not necessarily going to make you look like you're 16 per se.
1: Um, but Which I feel like when I was a 20-year-old, I, I wish I didn't look like a 16-year-old.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but with that in mind, even if you are 20 and you're interested in taking these NAD Plus precursors, these can still have benefits for your health um, overall and certainly as a preventative measure and as a way to you know optimize your workouts and just your health in general. So we're not saying don't take these. We're just saying that if you do take them, Uh, You likely won't begin to look significantly younger than you are, Um, but that's totally fine. And I don't think that that's the goal of of taking NAD plus precursor supplements for a lot of young people in general.
1: But with that in mind, for older individuals, enhancing your NAD plus status really can make you look a little bit younger. And this is something David Sinclair has talked about too. And there's, I think, some new imaging software or something that can analyze people's faces and based on how their face looks, it can determine maybe how old they are, because apparently the way our faces look are a pretty good determinant of our health and age. So with that in mind, older individuals who maybe look like they've aged a little bit, NAD plus can maybe help reverse some of this. Or maybe if you are taking NAD plus for a prolonged period of time as you are aging, then you won't necessarily have this more aged look to you, maybe there is some of that being prevented by higher levels of NAD+, which is interesting. And, and honestly, looking at someone like David Sinclair, who is in his 50s and who has taken NMN and resveratrol for 15 years, I have to say he does look very good for being in his 50s. So it, I think that seems to work.
0: Awesome. So now moving on to our next question, which comes from Nemesis Ra Algaris very cool username. The question is how do you effectively restore NAMPT function so that old people can process NAD plus like young again?
1: That's a really good question and I'm not a hundred percent sure what the best answer here would be. I think it's a bit of uncharted territory too because we've looked at enhancing the activity of NAMPT. not finding a whole lot to go off of, but because NAMPT is under circadian control, the better we sleep, likely the better NAMPT can function, and this is something in older people, their sleep usually uh, declines in quality, so melatonin levels go down, circadian rhythms are not as tightly controlled, so maybe taking something like melatonin and adopting a more consistent bedtime and wake-up time could help enhance NAMPT levels and activity.
0: Awesome. And their next question is, how does fasting affect NAD levels? We discussed this at length earlier on in the podcast.
1: Yeah, so in short, they go up. You should probably be fasting if you're interested in NAD
0: Awesome. And another follow-up question, I've heard theories saying NAD plus molecules can cross the blood-brain barrier. Is this true?
1: Probably not. Uh, I I modeled both NAD plus and NADH on Swiss Predict, on, on their ADME uh, side of the, the website, and it's saying it's not able to cross the blood-brain barrier. I can't really find any research indicating that it could cross the blood-brain barrier, and if we look at the pharmacokinetic data just just looking at the molecule itself it's in violation of a lot of rules like it's pretty much violating all of the Lipinski rule of 5 which is looking at bioavailability the molecular weight is too, too high it's just a huge cumbersome molecule that's likely not absorbing really well orally not going past the blood-brain barrier but then this brings up another interesting point and I can't find any studies looking at orally supplementing NAD plus by itself, but I do see studies looking at supplementing NADH, which NADH is basically just NAD plus with an extra hydrogen group tacked on. So why are there studies on NADH where it seems like it is actually having positive effects and it's actually absorbing? and And I've taken NADH myself and noticed interesting effects with it, so it definitely seems to do something. But if I have to be totally honest, just looking at the molecule and and the phosphate um, bridge, or whatever it's called, that's connecting the the two molecules together to make NAD+, and NADH being phosphate based I think it can get broken pretty quickly in the uh, small in the stomach and in the intestines so if this bond is cleaved then those two separate uh, compounds are being absorbed and those can probably make it past the blood brain barrier and then maybe they can find each other again and can become NAD plus again and I think that might be what's going on with NADH it might be first getting oxidized into NAD+, and then maybe being cleaved, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there, but it seems to have an effect, people seem to have positive effects with NADH, and NADH is pretty much the same molecule, so I'm not sure why no one's ever really looked at supplementing straight NAD+, but it probably is not the best strategy, and I think one other thing is, because it is such a large molecule, because there is phosphate chemistry involved, it's probably really, really expensive to get NAD+, and, and even NADH is quite an expensive molecule, so it's probably just better to go with NMN and NR, which can cross the blood-brain barrier, which are cheaper, which will absorb well, which don't violate the Lipinski rules. so that's probably the better way to go, and I, I, yeah, I don't think NAD+, will across the blood-brain barrier significantly.
0: Awesome. Good to know. And then one more follow-up question, which is, some people suggest NR is better at elevating NAD plus levels in the liver than NMN. Is this true?
1: Maybe, but again, if you think about, you know, you have to tack a phosphate group onto the nicotinamide riboside before you can make NAD plus, then... NMN having that phosphate group on there already and being one step away from NAD plus instead of two steps away from NAD plus like nicotinamide riboside is, it honestly seems a little bit unlikely unless there is higher enzyme activity in the liver that seems to favor the input of nicotinamide riboside over nicotinamide mononucleotide that may be the case which would be really interesting but I I think both nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide have their place in NAD plus supplementation, but I think overall NMN will always be the better way to enhance NAD plus levels, just purely and logically based on the transporters that exist for uh, NMN and the fact that it already has that phosphate group, so it's easier to make NAD plus with it. And we know it is because it's just one step away in the salvage pathway.
0: Awesome. Now we have a handful of questions from seen the F Nords, and I was thinking we could do this a little bit like popcorn style. So I'm going to ask you one question, and you'll answer it, and then we'll just go through the list because there's nine here. So it's going to be kind of speed round. Are you awesome. ready? Yeah. Okay. So the first question is: What dose of enteric coated NMN is equivalent to 750 milligrams of powder?
1: Uh... I can't really answer that with scientific validity. I mean, we haven't done pharmacokinetic studies and looked at blood levels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just based on subjective effects, it seems like you're getting about twice as much absorption with the uh, enteric coated tablets, which conveniently is also why our enteric coated tablets are 125 milligrams and our non enteric coated capsules are 250 milligrams, double the dose. So just I guess if you really want to make this comparison, just half the dose. So basically, like, taking two to three of the entire coated tablets will probably get you right around maybe 750 milligrams of NMN. But maybe at these higher doses, pharmacokinetics also changes because pharmacokinetics changes according to dosage level. So it's really hard to determine at these higher doses, maybe there's an advantage to having it not be coated, Or maybe there's always an advantage to having it be coated. So I'm not totally sure. But interesting to experiment with. Okay, number absolutely.
0: Two. Number two is, is sublingual a viable delivery method for NMN and NR? If so, can
1: the dose be lowered? Absolutely not. So anything that has a dosage above like i would say my limit for sublingual dosing is probably around 25 milligrams and that's even a stretch uh, our saliva gets super saturated with most compounds right around 5-10 milligrams or so and the absorption through the sublingual and buccal membranes are is relatively slow and most people are not sublingual dosing properly anyways they're leaving it there for five minutes and then swallowing that's just oral dosing with maybe a few micrograms of sublingual dosing if you're keeping it there for a really long time, like maybe an hour or so, maybe you can absorb like 10 milligrams, and maybe that 10 milligrams absorbed sublingually is more than enough, but with compounds that have higher doses, just take them orally. It's not worth having a mouthful of powder. It's probably not going to absorb very well either, and if it is having some sort of effect, eh, it's probably more placebo, so... But so
0: the simple answer is sublingual is not the best delivery method for NMN and NR. And then with that in mind, we do not recommend lowering
1: your dose. Especially because we have human clinical research showing that oral NMN and NR can enhance NAD plus levels. And as far as I know, there's no studies on sublingual use. And there's probably a reason for this. It would be really easy for a researcher to go, hey we need to use way less material and we can achieve the same effects, let's have everyone dose it sublingually. There's a reason you never really see sublingual dosing in research studies because oftentimes it's not an appropriate dosing methodology.
0: Awesome, very straightforward. So, next question. What timing of kerosetin or apigenin dosage is ideal for enteric-coated and powdered That's a really
1: good question because enteric-coated tablets do take a while to absorb. Like, I think. It first has to survive about four hours in the gastro- uh, in the stomach, at least four hours. I'll have to check in with our lab director on that because we do the testing for it. But it has to survive through the passage of the stomach, which I believe is in the order of four to six hours. And then once it gets into the intestines, it starts absorbing. So the absorption for NMN is really delayed uh, with the enteric coated tablet. So there's a few things that you could do. You could either take apigenin or curcumin right away and just consider that you are inhibiting the CD38 enzyme ahead of time before NMN can come in rather than taking it all at the same time and then having the CD38 inhibition happening while maybe the NAD plus you are producing is already being consumed by CD38. I, maybe the best method would just be to take the enteric coated tablet and apigenin or curacetin right at the same time, or maybe it's better to just do it maybe after two hours or after four hours, but then that adds a lot of complexity to your stack too. If you're willing to take on this complexity, then you can definitely play around with it a little bit and consider that it takes about four to six hours before you start seeing noticeable concentrations of NMN absorbing with the enteric coated tablets.
0: Awesome. And then for powdered NMN, what would you say the timing is like? Uh, they're
1: same thing. So you could take them right at the same time and then they would be absorbing right at the same time. Or you could maybe take Apigen Curie Seed an hour before. If I was in your shoes, and I am in your shoes because I do this myself too, then I just take them all at the same time. It's easiest Then I actually remember to take it. Once I start introducing these really split up stacks and... I have to wait a couple hours here and a couple hours there, and I take some in the morning and some in the afternoon and some in the evening. My compliance with taking my supplements becomes lower and lower. It becomes kind of bothersome to to take my stack in that way. So I just like taking things together and I'm getting good effects with it, even though that might not be the most optimized solution. I am doing it consistently. So I would go with whatever works most consistently for you. And it would make sense to inhibit the cd38 enzyme before you get nad plus production happening because of your nmn and nicotinamide riboside supplementation so maybe taking it a little bit before but now that i'm in talking through it it does take a couple of weeks for your nad plus levels to go up so at the end of the day maybe it all doesn't really matter that much if we are just looking at the long-term solution then keeping that CD38 enzyme activity lower every single day and increasing NAD plus synthesis every single day. Maybe timing really isn't that crucial then. And what's more crucial is just that we're doing it consistently.
0: All right. Next question is, is it better to dose NMN throughout the day or take it all in a whack in the AM?
1: All in the AM because NAD plus synthesis and NAD plus levels, they exist uh, on a circadian rhythm, so highest in the morning, so it would make sense to feed this process with NMN right in the morning, and that's what I've been doing, and I think taking it first thing in the morning, also fasted, and then continuing to fast a little bit after this, that's the best way I've found to take NMN or NR.
0: Awesome. Next question is, if taking NMN and NR together, can the optimum dose be lowered? And I'm gonna, I'm going to start this one out by saying no, you should just take the recommended dose, even if you're taking them together. That's going to give you the most optimization for NAD plus production.
1: Yeah, so there's two ways to look at that. If we're, like Erica is saying, if we're looking at normally we're taking 250 milligrams of nicotinamide mononucleotide, and that one's really efficient at enhancing NAD plus levels, and now we drop it to 125 milligrams of NMN, and then make up for the rest of that with 125 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside, which we know is not as efficient at enhancing NAD plus levels, then we are probably not heading in the right direction. With that in mind, I would then just take your normal regular dose of NMN, which for our capsules is 250 milligrams, and then stacking it together with our recommended dose of nicotinamide riboside so that you're not necessarily making a trade-off, you're still getting the proper dose of NMN, you're getting the proper dose of NR, you're just feeding the salvage pathway from two different inputs, and you're getting some of those added benefits of nicotinamide riboside in the axons of neurons and having maybe a more neuroprotective effect than NAD plus itself and NMN. So take full doses. I, I don't necessarily think that stacking them together warrants lowering the dose of either or, especially because we are probably all a little bit on the lower end of the dosing spectrum anyways, even though that is efficient, which I think leads into your next question.
0: And that is, what are cost-no-object optimum doses for NMN and NR?
1: Yeah, and that would probably be right around a gram of NMN, which would be an expensive dose, but that's what David Sinclair takes, and because he is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the top authorities on NAD+ precursor supplementation and sirtuin activity and stuff like that, I would definitely trust what he has to say. And because David Sinclair probably has access to as much NMN as he wants, he's just taking the dose that he feels is best based on all of the years of research he has done. And if he's taking a gram, yeah, that's probably the cost no object dose that you want to go for.
0: Awesome. This next question is how long to wait before a meal? after ingestion. And this, I can also answer by saying, it's best to take NAD plus precursor supplements prior to a meal. So during a fasted portion of your day.
1: Absolutely. This would be a good strategy. It's my strategy. I like taking it when I'm a little bit fasted already and especially when I start getting hungry and I take uh, my NAD plus precursors then the hunger response is blunted so I can actually fast a little bit longer which is a really interesting effect that I've noticed and because when we fast NAD plus production goes up anyways it, it seems logical to combine the two doing fasting and uh, NMN NR supplementation that being said, David Sinclair also seems to be under the impression that taking it with a bit of fat is the best way to go. But then you run into the the problem where fat probably can break a fast pretty quickly. But with that in mind, maybe taking it with a meal is not the worst thing in the world because you might have slightly better absorption because there's more fat present. I'm always a little bit skeptical uh, about this Uh, Theory where we need to take things that are not necessarily super water-soluble with a fat and that maybe we are mixing them together and it's already in solution and then we take it, that that makes sense, and I think David Sinclair is doing this, but just taking a teaspoon of oil or something and then the NMN or NR right afterwards, it seems unlikely that they're necessarily going to just... bump into each other in significant amounts in the stomach and absorb better that way. Um, And we have bile acids that can bind to compounds that are not super water-soluble and allow them to absorb. And this is actually how a lot of different compounds absorb. So do we really need the fat there? Do our bile acids already take care of some of this? Kind of unknown. So I would honestly just take the NMN and NR whenever it is most logical for you. For me, this is first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, with no input of fats or anything, and then continuing to fast for a few more hours until it is lunchtime. So that works well for me, I I definitely noticed the effects, so I don't necessarily think dietary fat is all too crucial. Um, but I don't necessarily think that a meal will negatively impact the absorption and may even positively impact absorption. So do with that information what you will. But flexibility is there if you need it.
0: Awesome. And another question in this group is it best to take TMG, methylfolate, B12 with these precursors and when?
1: Yeah, we've gone over this a few times now uh, with some of these questions. It can be good to take a methyl donor, not entirely uh, crucial. And probably in terms of timing, again, probably not that crucial because you're just adding to this general pool of methyl groups and then NMN and and NR supplementation is gradually mopping up this pool. So what we're really doing is just topping up the pool You could probably take it right at the same time. Again, that would be the most convenient. And then if NMN and NR are actively mopping up methyl groups and TMG or methylfolate are actively adding methyl groups to that pool, then maybe those would equal each other out. But I think, again, it just boils down. And with a lot of these things where we're looking at cellular health and long-term supplementation, the real key is just being consistent with your supplementation.
0: Awesome. And... To round out this group of questions, a favorite that we get asked all the time, and we'll answer it happily every single time, this question is, should NMN or NR be cycled? No. Awesome. Simple answer, nope, does not need to be cycled. So now we're going to move on to our next question, and this one comes from Efraily Resources, and the question is, are there any possible hypotheses for NMN causing lethargy or tiredness? I've tried various doses and have taken with other supplements, including TMG, but always with the same tiredness. I refuse to take any more unless I read someone with any kind of insight as to why this might be.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it looks like you are a bit of a a one-off case here because I haven't necessarily heard of this happening. Doing the research on it, I I can't really tell why this would happen. I don't think there's necessarily a... uh, A mechanism there, maybe one of the metabolites of NMN might induce tiredness, like NAM or something. Uh, I'm not totally sure. Maybe your uh, conversion of nicotinamide mononucleotide into NAD plus somehow is impacted by certain enzyme deficiencies or overactivity. Not entirely sure. Another thing that could be happening is because. NAD plus synthesis or higher NAD plus levels can likely increase the uh, citric acid cycle and increase glycolysis. Maybe if you are getting rid of more um, glucose and maybe you're doing a ketogenic diet or your glucose consumption or carbohydrate consumption is really low, then maybe taking something like NAD plus is dropping your blood glucose levels, which could maybe result in some fatigue um what would be some other factors that could be at play here Um, i think maybe another thing although i'm not sure how this would necessarily relate to psychological fatigue but if the citric acid cycle is being sped up by nad plus higher nad plus levels which is very likely then you might also have higher levels of pyruvate and if you can't get rid of pyruvate Uh, efficiently then pyruvate can also turn into lactic acid which could have a fatigue effect on your muscles and maybe uh, elevated lactic acid um, levels could also have an effect on psychological fatigue I'm not entirely sure but I, I if I were to give my best guess it would probably be in this maybe excessive pyruvate not being dealt with properly and getting some lactic acid and then also maybe Glycolysis being sped up, and there just not being enough glycogen stores or glucose for that process to properly work.
0: Awesome. And uh, a complex question with a bit of a complex answer, but that's why we're here. So now we're moving on to our next set of questions, and these ones are coming from Sprinter Glory. The first question is Are there any potential downsides or risks associated with elevating NAD levels above? and individuals' current baseline levels? Could any undesirable epigenetic modifications follow, or could other salubrious processes and mechanisms be disrupted? Or is it instead posited that raising NAD levels in the aged is an absolute good that escapes the economic principle of TINSTAFL, at least at the localized level of individual health? Is it possible that the shift from higher NED plus levels in younger people to lower levels in older people is advantageously evolved? Again, the focus of this latter question is on individual dynamics, not population level evolution.
1: OK, let me quickly address the last part of your question there. so. Is it possible that the shift from higher NAD plus levels in younger people to lower levels in older people is advantageously involved? Probably not, because we're not supposed to get old. This is why these things happen. We're supposed to die a lot younger, but we are living a lot older than we should due to having more food around, due to having uh, better health care, um, better shielding from the environment, better hygiene, etc., etc. We are just living a whole lot longer not likely how long we should be living. So I don't think it is advantageous to have NAD plus levels go down, especially when you see all of the nasty effects accommodating low NAD plus levels. Raising NAD plus levels way, way, way through the roof maybe could have some negative effects. Too much of a good thing it's usually bad. But reaching these insane levels of NAD plus is probably really hard to do with more reasonable doses of NMN. So if you're taking 250 milligrams of NMN, probably up to a gram of NMN, your NAD plus levels are going up very significantly, but it's not like they're going up 100 or 200 fold or something like that. So... I I do think that maintaining adequate NAD plus levels, considering that it is a cofactor for 300 different enzymes and the sirtuins, and they control DNA replication and protein deacetylation and all of these really, really important factors that, and as David Sinclair says, without NAD plus in your system, you're probably dead in 30 seconds. It, It seems like it's a very important compound to keep topped up. And... Unfortunately, we lose it as we age, and it's likely because we're not supposed to age that much.
0: All right, and our next question is While effective doses for particular outcomes are understood from the existing research, are there optimal doses known or an optimum serum concentration, e.g., if different people need to supplement different amounts to reach a particular health effect?
1: Yeah, so right in the 250 milligram to 1000 milligram range seems to be the ideal dosing range it's the dosing range that's been studied the most and produces significant elevation of NAD plus levels without much other effect um, so I would go w- with that for the doses knowing from individual to individual how much they need a supplement is is entirely impossible to answer because then you have to take into account what is the sirtuin activity like, if sirtuin activity is really high, you're consuming a lot of NAD+, then you'll need more NAD+. Maybe sirtuin activity is a little bit lower in some people, maybe they don't have as much protein acetylation, so the sirtuins just don't have to be as active and aren't consuming as much NAD+, then that person likely will need a lower dose of NAD+. just the way it absorbs, the the acidity of your stomach, the, the permeability of your intestines, it becomes a really difficult question to answer, which is why we just stick to these average dosing ranges that seem to work well for everyone. Once we get down to the level of like highly customized, highly personable supplementation stacks, then you're also going to have to spend quite a lot of money on doing regular blood tests, which pretty much no one really has the Opportunity to do really well. Like I'm interested in doing some of it via Insight Tracker, for example. This is something that um, David Sinclair is uh, an ambassador for too, and it's interesting hearing him talk about some of the markers that they use. They use 43 different markers, but I'm not particularly stoked on spending uh, close to $600 on a single blood test. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. So if if you have lots of disposable income then supplement and do one of these inside tracker things the full 43 panel uh, blood test four times a year or something once a quarter and then base your supplementation on the results you're seeing on paper that would be the best way to do it be a very expensive way to do it Um, but that would be the most accurate scientific way of going about finding the perfect dose for you
0: Awesome. Our next question is, does exogenous supplementation of NAD plus increasing compounds lead to homeostatic adjustment, such that beneficial effects seem to diminish over time, or such that NAD plus levels normalize around the pre-supplementation levels? If NAD plus levels continue to fall with aging, would one need to increase her dose to compensate and achieve steady maintenance levels? Very interesting question.
1: Yeah, so as we age and we start losing NAD+, it means we will need to top up with more NAD+, which would mean that we need a higher dose. So I would say that likely younger people can get away with the lower doses like 250 milligrams and have benefits because 250 milligrams of NMN is maybe putting you at higher than baseline levels of NMN quite rapidly, where that might not be happening for an older individual who has much lower endogenous NAD plus production and lower NAD plus levels to begin with, might take a little bit more effort to top them up. I mean, thinking about it like uh, an empty glass or a glass that's already half full, it would take less water to fill up the glass that's already half full. So similar here.
0: Awesome. Our next question is, Relatedly, does increasing NAD plus by exogenous means lead to exogenous downregulation of NAD plus promoting processes such that reliance on exogenous supplementation can occur, thereby requiring long-term supplementation to avoid any harms associated with withdrawal? Any thoughts on titration?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting thing to think about. And I am I'm not totally sure that supplementing with more NMN and more nictinamide riboside would necessarily downregulate these uh, enzymes. That I don't see much evidence for that. So I, I don't believe this would be the case. And I don't believe this is the case with a lot of different endogenous compounds, unless, you know, it's obviously a very famous example with testosterone, where excessive doses of testosterone can over time shut down testosterone synthesis. But I think that's much more of a protective mechanism because having higher levels of testosterone is not necessarily super healthy. You you hear a lot of these big professional bodybuilders talking about the dangers of high doses of testosterone which Pretty much all of them are taking it. is It's a risky endeavor, and I think our body is well adapted to shutting that risky endeavor down, which is why a lot of bodybuilders pretty much have to be on TRT for the rest of their lives because they're almost permanently shutting down endogenous testosterone production. Where I don't think that's necessarily going on with NAD plus because we need NAD plus for so many different processes in the body and we normally have multiple grams of nad floating around in our body with testosterone for example that's that's not the case but it is the case when we start injecting large doses of it but with something like nad with glutathione you have stores of actual grams floating around your body at all times NAD plus is being turned over very rapidly all the time, being turned into NADH, back into NAD plus, into Nam, into nicotinic acid, back in the salvage pathway, through the de novo pathway, through the price handler pathway. There's just so many different routes to NAD I wouldn't necessarily worry about supplementation being a sentence where now all of a sudden you have to take NAD plus for the rest of your life. However as we age we know we lose NAD plus so honestly if you do start taking NAD plus now it would be a little bit silly to stop taking NAD plus enhancing supplements at a certain point because it's not like we're getting younger so if we if i were to take uh, NMN and NR for the next 10 years and then stop then how much of a positive benefit am i having on aging later in life so for me i think i am going to be taking nmn and nr till the day i die similar to someone like david sinclair who at this point has already been taking nmn for 15 years straight every single day so but i also don't think if david sinclair misses a dose that he's going to be writhing around on the floor dying um I certainly hope not. <laughs> because it, it's it's not causing a, a shutdown. It's a very well-regulated system. And I will be supplementing it long-term. But it will be interesting to see, with more people supplementing long-term, if we will discover new things like that. And considering that it controls so many parts of our body, how does it influence aging? We, we know we can reverse some age-related markers, but have... Are there any studies really looking at someone like myself taking nmn for 30 years and then seeing what my status is like as a 60 year old that would be a really 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 long study so it's not going to happen um, but that would be interesting to consider how is this changing my physiology as i age uh, and hopefully And all the research is pointing in the right direction that if I am taking NMN and NR, I will enhance my aging process.
0: Awesome. The next question is, are there non-supplement means of increasing NAD plus? If so, is there a practical ceiling on their effects such that one may still be wise to supplement NAD plus promoting compounds? And the main uh, non-supplement means of increasing NAD plus is through fasting, which we discussed a little bit earlier.
1: Yeah, fasting and uh, calorie restriction. So you could either fast, that's probably the best way to do it, and probably one of the most uh, uh, significant calorie restriction mechanisms. Um, but you could also just eat a little bit less, exercise a little bit more, um, likely make sure that your blood glucose levels aren't spiking as much, which you can achieve through a lifestyle alterations. So that seems to be a really good way. There's definitely a limit to this. And it does seem like supplementing NAD plus precursors on top of fasting is the best way to go. And this is what David Sinclair does. And I know I've mentioned him a lot during this podcast, but he is one of the biggest authorities on this subject.
0: Awesome. The next question is, how does NAD plus fit into the overall current aging framework? including models that focus on aspects of hormesis or focus on eliciting the antioxidant response element and raising glutathione levels? Are there synergies to be realized between one's NAD strategy and other longevity practices? Perhaps relatedly, does pursuing an NAD increasing strategy obviate other strategies or stacks one might be taking? Very complex and thoughtful questions here.
1: Yeah, and NAD plus can indeed work as an oxidation regulating compound, but as it's doing this it will also get consumed in the process, Um, so likely decreasing oxidative stress would be a good strategy to maintain higher NAD plus levels to begin with, Um, so this could fit into a stack. So then looking at other synergies that can be realized, I would refer you back to the main body of the podcast because we do talk a lot about synergies there, but taking things that uh, inhibit CD38 would enhance NAD plus levels on top of taking NMN and NR, um, taking things that activate AMPK and lower uh, or make it glucose metabolism a little bit more efficient like berberine, would be really good additions. um, Things that activate sirtuins would be really good additions. So there are a lot of synergies that can be found there.
0: Awesome. And now our next question is, is there anything that could undercut the effectiveness of attempting to raise NAD plus levels, e.g., not maintaining a particular ratio of NADH to NAD plus, or preventing absorption, or creating a rate limiting factor? This could be behavioral practices or other supplements, for example
1: yes if you eat a lot you overeat you're really overweight you're super sedentary those would all be factors that would not be conducive to enhancing NAD plus levels and would actually get in the way because you see in people that are very overweight that they have lower NAD plus levels um so this would be i think a, a good strategy if you are interested in increasing nad plus levels and you are overweight then a, a good strategy would likely be to address your weight your level of fitness your diet first before considering nad plus elevating supplements or more doing it in the sense that You kickstart the process by taking these NAD plus enhancing supplements, and this can also alter uh, appetite and things like that, as we've discovered here and there with some subjective reports. So that would be the one thing I would avoid, eating too much, never being hungry. Um, So combating that by fasting a little bit, those could be factors that would help. Um... Yeah, what are other factors? Yeah, not exercising enough would be another one. I, I think you also see in sedentary mice and rats well, the lower levels of NAD+. I'm not sure if this has been done in humans, but definitely... Oh, and, and sleep. If you're not sleeping properly and your circadian rhythm is all over the place, because uh, NAD+, synthesis is based on a circadian rhythm, the better the circadian rhythm, the better the NAD+, enhancing strategies will likely work. So basically three big things that are not necessarily supplements we are taking or other strategies but more the the big stuff that a lot of us probably don't want to address right away because it's a lot of work but making sure our diet is good maybe fitting in some fasting somewhere making sure we get enough exercise and making sure that we are staying at a healthy weight is probably the best advantages you can you can have there or the worst things you can do for NAD plus enhancement strategies if you are not taking care of those things.
0: Good to know. And our last and final question that we have for today's podcast is, are there any subpopulations that should avoid raising NAD plus levels for now? How early is too early to try to manipulate one's NAD plus levels?
1: I'm honestly not sure. And again, because NAD plus is necessarily for pretty much every process in the body. I don't necessarily see a subgroup of people that would benefit from not having more NAD+, or lowering their NAD+. That just kind of seems like a strange strategy. So I I would say probably everyone can benefit from it. Of course, a a very young person, like an 18-year-old or something, yeah, is it really worthwhile supplementing uh, with those things for them? Their NAD Plus levels hopefully are through the roof, but I also wouldn't necessarily say it's a bad thing for an 18-year-old to be taking NAD Plus levels, and you know, who knows, maybe for that 18-year-old NAD Plus levels are um, a little bit messed up, and you want to supplement with it, but again, maybe the best strategy there would also, if you have any concerns like am I a good candidate for uh, NAD plus enhancement strategies, maybe it would be good to get some sort of blood panel that measures it. Uh, Otherwise, it it might be a little bit hard to determine who should be avoiding it. Maybe if your NAD plus levels are already really, really high, maybe abnormally high, then of course, taking NAD plus precursors would not be ideal. I don't really know what type of person would be having really high levels of NAD plus causing negative effects? So I'm I'm not totally sure on that question.
0: And if we're going to just add a little bit of the the positive to do take NAD plus uh, promoting supplements, we would say a good time to start thinking about taking these would be probably around your thirties or so.
1: Yeah. So like we said. 30 to 40 is probably the range where you'll start seeing NAD plus levels going down. So starting to take NAD plus then is probably a good strategy. But honestly, taking it even before that time, like I'm doing, could be a good strategy too.
0: Awesome. So we have reached the end of this month's podcast episode. And boy, we have sifted through a lot of information and research and questions from all of you. Today's podcast topic has been really wide-reaching, and we have a lot of information to sift through, so if you want to revisit parts of the podcast or you have further questions, you can always check out the detailed chapters that we have available on YouTube so that you can skip to the spot in the podcast that you want to go to to do some further listening. We're super grateful for your involvement and for your participation in asking questions for the In Search of Insight podcast. Uh, Whenever you ask your questions on Reddit, we always end up diving into new research and going in different directions than we would without your participation. So please keep those questions and discussions coming. And we really, really appreciate you sending your research studies and your insights so that we can learn more together through In Search of Insight.